When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy and theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today is another episode with a fantastic guest. I have with me Dr. Owen Anderson. He's a a professor of philosophy and religious studies at Arizona State University, where he taught for 20 years. He has been an adjunct professor at Phoenix Seminary for six years, as well as a research fellow at Princeton University and a visiting scholar at Princeton Seminary. He has published books on natural theology and natural law with Cambridge University Press, his research focus on the knowledge of God and related topics like the problem of evil, the inexcusability of unbelief, and the need for redemptive revelation. And we're going to get into a lot of that today. I wish we could cover everything, but that would take like seven hours. It would would take a whole lifetime. He's been at it for a long time. So without further ado, Dr. Anderson, thanks so much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be able to talk with you today. Yeah, so we uh, I first came across you because uh, there's this book that you wrote, Reasons and Worldview, and Reason and Worldviews. Yeah, um, this was your was this your thesis? It started your, off as my MA thesis in religious studies. Okay, and as a previous book, just titled mm-hmm. Benjamin B. Warfield and Right Reason. Okay, and so then the copy you have is an updated version where I added a chapter on a chapter that includes Locke and Edwards and a chapter that includes Plantinga. Yeah. Okay. Initially, did you have Van Til in there then? Yeah. So I have, so in that book, I look at uh, Charles Hodge, mm-hmm. Abraham Kuyper, uh, Benjamin Warfield, Cornelius Van Til, Alvin Plantinga. Yeah. So kind of, uh, it's sort of a history I'm arguing, right? From, from old school Princeton, because Van Til spans the gap, right? He was at Princeton and then he goes over to Westminster. Yep. So going from old school Princeton up to contemporary reformed epistemology. Yeah. And so anyone who who knows me at all knows that all of those authors are people I like to read. And so I was just like fully lit up on that and I bought the book and then I haven't been able to get into it like I want. So I figured what's the next best thing? Well, you know, have yeah. him on the podcast. It might be the, yeah. the even better thing. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. But first, um, we are Facebook friends, and this is really fun because you, I respect you a lot. I respect the way you teach. Uh, you will post your, your YouTube uh, mini like lectures and stuff like that. Oh, I've seen some lectures yeah. too, but yeah, I try to yeah, post like, forever. Hi- hiking with Anderson where you're, you're asking deep questions out in the, on the hills and stuff. And so I think I saw last year that you were teaching on Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, and that's by David Hume. And yeah. Um, Dr. Harold Netlin here at Ted's has said that that's a must read for us. And so I skimmed it last year, two years ago, and it was a little bit tough for me to go at a skim because he's using old English. And I know that it's such an important book, but again, Mm -hmm. I haven't had a chance to get in like I want to. So I figure 
yeah. next best thing, let's have you know Dr. Yeah, Anderson. And I like how you have Zoom back there in the background of our. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Let me let me plug my uh, my YouTube channel. I have a YouTube plug channel, Doctor Owen Anderson. So there, I have the series you were mentioning, hiking with Anderson. Those are usually shorter, like ten minutes or less. Yeah. Kind of just, it's almost like the idea of Pensies. I actually thought about naming it Pensies <laughs> as well because just kind of like shorter thoughts. And then I have right. longer lectures I post as well. Mm-hmm. And I have a whole series there where I go through the dialogues. It's actually based on a class I teach at Phoenix Seminary on the problem of evil. Oh, okay. So we went through yeah Hume's dialogue. So yeah, let's start there. Uh, maybe also just as we begin, mm-hmm. uh, I can do some. Just mention some of my books for your, please, your readers. Please. Cause you, you put you held up one. This is one of my earliest books on reason and worldviews, mm-hmm. which goes over those thinkers. Um, most recently, I've done some books on natural law. Yep. So I have this one with Cambridge Declaration of Independence and God, mm-hmm. where we look at uh, how the idea of God has shaped American law. So looking mm-hmm. at different different important cases, and then another one on natural law. Uh, natural law, natural moral law, the good after modernity. So looking at the idea of natural law after the challenges from modernity, which tends to be nominalist and 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 go away from the idea of natural law. And especially the idea of natural law becomes something thought of as, well, that's a Catholic thing. Yeah. And the right. modern world doesn't do natural law. It talks about natural rights. Mm. And then I have two books on Princeton, old school Princeton. Okay. I have one on reason and faith at early Princeton and then another one, Reason, Faith, and Charles Hodge. Okay. And then the book, I hope we get this to this topic today. That's why I say this one for last. Uh, the Clarity of God's Existence. Mm, yeah. The Ethics of Belief After the Enlightenment. So my research focuses on this claim. Yeah. Not only does God exist, it's clear that God exists so that unbelief is without excuse. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different level than saying probably God exists and people can disagree. Smart people are on both sides of the debate. That, that's true. Smart people are on both sides of the debate, yeah. but I'm looking at the idea that if unbelief is without excuse, mm-hmm. then it must be clear, not just some smart people can get there after a lot of a lifetime of learning. Right. Yeah. So that, I want to unpack that idea while we're talking. What does that mean for it to be clear? Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. Re- real quick again, before um, we get in just some, some personal questions for me, where, where did you do your PhD at and what was that in? I did my, I, so I did all my degrees at Arizona state. Oh, okay. And it wasn't on purpose. I, I applied to it and have been accepted to other schools, believe it or not, mm-hmm. but it, just in terms of how life circumstances right. and tuition waivers, uh, scholarships right. were given. I did a BA in philosophy and a BA in history. And I did a BA in, or a master's degree in philosophy and religious studies. Wow. And, and, and the, both of those were great because I was at a secular research university, Arizona state's the largest research secular research university in the country. Yeah. Uh, but I was able to study in religious studies. I studied old school Princeton. Yeah. That's what's so interesting. That's why I want to ask you because these yeah. secular folks are letting you go in on stuff that you want. And yeah, it's been great. That's in, so in, 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 in philosophy, I studied the problem of the weakness of the will. Okay. We can bring that up again as well today. People do, think, do you call that a crazy? Is that a yeah, right? Okay. So people think you can knowingly do evil. And I argue, no, you can't. Hmm. So we'll talk about that. And then yeah. I did my PhD in the philosophy of religion there as well. And then yeah. as I finished up, you know, the way it works in tenure track jobs, there's not a lot of them. Yeah, so as right. I finished up my PhD, a tenure track job opened up at ASU and I applied for it and, and yeah. got it. So then I've been there and then I got tenure and I got promoted to full professor a couple of years ago. Yeah. Congrats on that. I know that's a, a big thing that uh, the listeners might not uh, realize that, you know, oh, a doctorate, like that's, that's legit. But uh, I learned this from Jerry Root over at Wheaton. He, he said he really felt like he arrived when he was a, a full professor. Yeah. Like that's a really big deal in the academic world when you get to be a professor. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and and, and my whole career has been in the second university. I'm, I'm I'm thinking from the list I've seen so far of your interviews. A lot of your interviews are people from religious schools, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. I might be. Am I the first professor from a secular institution? You no, I, I've had Jim Slagle, but he's. Um... I don't know all their all their uh, where they're sure, at. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've actually I've reached out to a lot of secular philosophers, and they always uh, they always big time me. So yeah, I, I haven't got yeah. too many yet, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get in this. For doing all so these topics, I I put it on my books. I've done all of those in that uh, that secular university research university context. Can can so, I just, can I ask you how how have you been received there because you're well so um you do all this work with Princeton do you consider are you a Presbyterian are you a Calvinist or where, where are you at theologically? Um, let let me let me hold that one to the end of our discussion because oh, okay. I don't want to affect the way sure. that we get into the questions. Sure, but, but you're I, but you're, a, you're a, a Christian and you'll been... know when I start when I when I make some references you'll say aha okay all right. So uh, my point with that is that you've been in the secular university and you've been uh, doing all your work in like staunch, you know, hardcore uh, reformed thought. How have you been received as a professor there as someone who is pretty open about this? I see your lectures and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I've done all my work in uh, the, the secular academy, which doesn't mean the atheist academy. Right. Right. The secular academy. I, I understand it this way. This is a study of general revelation. Mm-hmm. So uh, as opposed to revealed religion, which you might do at a seminary. Yeah. So you're studying general revelation, then and that's natural theology is fair game. That's what you're doing. Sure. So, um, yeah, I think I have a good good uh, interactions with my colleagues. I mean, to get promoted to, to tenure and then to full professor, you go through a number of uh, peer review committees. Yeah. And and that's, that's uh, encouraging because a lot of times I hear a lot of doom and gloom from the secular Academy. And, and it's, it was surprising to hear about your story and how you've been successful in this area, even though, uh, especially in, I think, especially in religious studies, because you believe this stuff, you know, and a lot of religious yeah. studies that I, I work up here in Chicagoland. And uh, I think it'd be pretty hard to find a Christian religious studies. I know one um, who actually believes it, you know, who says yeah. this is Christianity and I also believe it. So um, yeah, it's yeah. kind of. I think. I think the the standard in religious studies would be that you don't study your own religion, mm. preferably. Okay. Um, and, and the idea is that religion is a kind of an object to study. Like you might go study zebras. Yeah. So you go study a religion. Yeah. And whether or not you believe it or not doesn't affect what right. you're studying. Is the, so, is the standard? So um, yeah, I, I I definitely have caught that that uh, I've been a little different because I'm doing even in religious studies I, I'm doing something more like the philosophy of religion right and looking at the history of of natural theology so it's so even then because I'm doing philosophy of religion is it's more about what we should believe yeah I love that I love that so so just a, a quick point someone one of my friends brought this up to me and they were saying uh, that it seems like you're more objective if you don't teach on in religious studies, if you don't teach on that, which you believe or whatever, but he, he said, well, I, I, I go to a scientist who believes in science. I don't yeah. go to a scientist who says, no, I don't believe this. So why wouldn't I want to go to a Muslim to learn about Islam? Why wouldn't I want to go to a Christian who believes this to learn about Christianity? And yeah. I just thought that was such an interesting point because I wasn't used to, to hearing that. Yeah. I, it's a good challenge to the idea of objectivity. Like somehow you'll be more objective to teach say Christianity if you're anti-Christian. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure why that it's a challenge idea of objectivity, but I think that the history of it is in getting away from theology studies into yeah. into neutral studies, so to speak. Right. So in theology, you're studying it because you believe it and advancing it, whereas this is is trying to, it's one of the humanities departments that's trying to be more like a science. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, that's interesting. So that brings us to um, to David Hume and the, yeah. the dialogues concerning natural religion, which you taught him. Uh, I got this book right here, and uh, there it is. I like uh, the, yeah. the Penguin. I love Penguin books. So why was this book worth teaching through for your students? Yeah, so this is a good example. This is a good – the answer is good because it illustrates also why I think it's important to be in the secular academy, mm. which is Hume's dialogues concerning natural religion – specifically that book, as opposed to his other works, I think contain the best examples of challenges to theistic beliefs. Mm-hmm. So the reason why you want to do that is because you want to say, yeah, what are the best challenges? Like, like you're training for the World Series. You don't want to play against the worst teams and exactly. practice, or practice exactly. against the best teams. So what's great about Hume is he, he summarizes these challenges coming back from ancient philosophy to his time, but he also anticipates everything. I don't think there's been anything that's been done, especially on the problem of evil, yeah, he didn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to find out that you're recycling old answers that have already been responded to. Yeah. And that's what knowing Hume helps you avoid that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so the whole thing begins as a dialogue between three guys, three fictional guys who are talking about whether or not we should teach our children natural theology. And one yeah. of them says, yeah, we want to start there. We start with natural theology. Another one says, no, it's too obscure. It's too difficult. Hmm. You got to just start with the Bible, just teach him the Bible. Yeah. So that's how the whole thing begins. And so then they have this dialogue about why is natural theology obscure and what's the purpose of natural theology? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, there's been some debate, I, I think, about uh, do, do one of the characters actually represent Hume himself? And to me, yeah. it seems like that uh, like Christians want to say he's representing this one, and atheists want to say no, he's more representing this one. Do you have any thoughts on that, or, or are we not able to psychoanalyze him through his writing? Well, I think in general he probably is represented by the character Philo, okay. based on other things that that he says in other works. But I'm not sure it's too important. That's that's like a question: who is the historical Hume? Like, let's mm. find the real Hume, which is yeah. a separate question. Because let's say Hume didn't believe anything in the dialogues. Mm-hmm. Like he thought it's all just hogwash. Well, that doesn't change the fact that we have to wrestle with, with right. these challenges, right? So to, right. It, for me, that's like, I, I think he's probably Philo. I think he, he I, I call it a radical empiricism because it's not, it's not Locke's empiricism. Okay. It's taking empiricism to its logical conclusions, which is yeah. skepticism. Mm-hmm. And so from there, the only way to, 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 to salvage religion is to become a kind of a mystic, which is what Philo does at the end of the, the dialogues. Interesting. And so that, that could be an interesting biological or a biographical point about Hume that maybe you say, well, he's a, he's a skeptic. We can kind of, or he's a mystic. We can look at his, his views here and there, but I, I totally agree with you that whatever he believed about him, he raised him in a good way, uh, that yeah. the arguments against natural religion. And so, um, would they used to say natural religion. Uh, yeah. Today we probably say natural theology. Yeah. Or Same thing. Natural religion sounds kind of like nature religion, like you're worshiping right. nature or something. Yeah. Yeah. So um, do you just, again, another bio- biographical point, do you have a favorite character in, in the dialogues? Well, I, I like all of them. I mean, Philo's mm-hmm. the most successful one. So you kind of follow him mm-hmm. throughout it, but I'm, I think uh Cleanthes has some valiant attempts at, at giving arguments. Yeah. So, so the main debate between those two comes down to this. Do, do are a posteriori arguments for God's existence successful and clean yeah. these things. They are, you can argue from experience of the world mm-hmm. using cosmological arguments. Okay. And Philo gives, gives responses to show how none of the cosmological arguments get you to theism. And I think this is a really important point because 
a lot of times I'll, I'll see a so, so-called theistic argument mm-hmm. and it doesn't get you to theism at all. Yeah. And here's a hint to, to the question you asked me earlier. How do we define God? Well, God is a spirit, mm-hmm. infinite, eternal, and unchanging in being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Yeah. Where's that from? Is, uh, I want to say uh, probably Westminster confession or shorter catechism question four. Okay. All right. So, does does the first cause argument get you to God? Not that God, not oh. that full description, right? Yeah. It, maybe it gets you to Aristotle, but remember, Aristotle's God is not God the Creator. Yeah, right. Right. Does a design argument get you there? No. So, so that's what Philo points out: is at best these get you to a demiurge, mm-hmm. not to God the Creator, and it doesn't even get you to one demiurge. It could be like a committee of demiurges right. who right. formed the world. Yeah. So uh, I, I know another famous critique of Hume and uh, is that, hey, you know, maybe the universe is more like a carrot or it's more like yeah. a vegetable. It, is that found in these dialogues? Yeah, he brings that up. Okay. Because it's in response to the design argument, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Clean Thesis is saying, look, when you look around the world, it's like a, an architect made it when you think about the design in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and so Philo challenges that analogy and says, why would you think it's analogous to a house? Why not analogous to a vegetable? Mm-hmm. which just kind of grows. Maybe the universe is just a giant vegetable that grows and has some pattern of growth, but there's, you wouldn't say an architect built it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he comes in with the problem of evil as well and says, not only that, if you came to a house and all the door frames were crooked and the windows were at the wrong height and the floor was wobbly, you, you would never think that's a good architect. <laughs> right. And that's what the world is like. Yeah. Yeah. And um, this is probably anachronistic here, but, does you, you talked about how Hume anticipates a lot of the arguments as well. So he kind of sums up a lot of the historical arguments up to his point and then anticipates a few. Do you see, so I see a, a distinction between the logical problem of evil and the evidential uh, yeah. argument from evil. It, can that be found in Hume or uh, like at least seeds or anything between those two? Or is he more uh, like logical? Can what, what do you think to that? I know it's- Well, I think both, he does go over both without naming them that way. Interesting. Yeah. He just starts with the logical problem and then he spends a lot of time on the evidences. Okay. So he goes over both. But I think the logical problem as it's come down since Planninga is this. Uh-huh. There's not really a logical contradiction, but we don't know- the answer for all we know, there's some greater good yep. that, that resolves a problem, but we don't know what it is. And Hume does address that solution. The great, and, and that would be like, uh, under the moniker of skeptical theism today that something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's he, right. Which is to say, no, if you don't know what the higher good is, then you don't have a solution and it yeah. shouldn't be hard to name the higher good. Just like when I started off, I said, I study that it's clear. God exists. I also mm-hmm. study it's clear. What is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to take a shot at what the good is. What's the highest good given what I just quoted a minute ago. Yeah. Uh, I would say uh, God's glory. Yeah. Pretty close. Huh? Where do you get yeah. that from? Uh, just the, the, the good old fashioned uh, reform theologians. Question number one. Yeah. The short catechism, right? What's the, yeah. what's the chief end of man? The, the chief end is the same as the highest good. Yeah. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what you need to do when you solve the problem of evil is show how that highest good is consistent with the reality of evil in the world. So um, I, I totally agree with that. And maybe you can push back on, on some of my thinking here. So I would say, um, in, in trying to answer that, that problem of evil, I would say uh, there is a morally sufficient reason that God has for allowing the evil that exists. And that morally sufficient, sufficient reason is ultimately his glory, the demonstration of his attributes. And then I would, I would use some skeptical theism in 
getting there. So I don't know exactly how this evil in the world glorifies God. I can't, I don't want to say the exact reason because there's probably, I think I'd have to be omniscient to know every reason he has for allowing this evil. But I know at the end of the day, it does, the, the summum uh, bonum up here is God's glory. Is there, so I'm kind of mixing and matching, I guess. Is yeah. that a problem? Is that? Well, I think we can refine it down a little bit more than that. So okay. by distinguishing, for example, between moral evil and yep. natural evil, mm-hmm. right? So moral evil being uh, an act contrary to God's law mm-hmm. or an act contrary to our, our nature as created by God. And, and perpetrated by, by by persons, right? Yeah, you... right. Personal, you make choices. Yeah. And then natural evil is things like old age, sickness, death, Hurricane. toil. Yeah. Drive. Yeah. All the Burn, things like that. that burning that, logs, falling on deer and stuff like that. Yeah. There are, they're not uh, directed by choice. I mean, well, forest fire, it might, might be some guy threw a cigarette out or something. Sure. Sure. But um, uh, yeah, you just get old, sick and die. The good mm-hmm. get old, sick and die and the wicked get old, sick and die. Yeah. So natural evil. So I, I'd say we can know the order between them, which is a moral evil came before natural evil. Yep. And natural evil is not a punishment for moral evil. It's a call back to get you to stop and think about it. Your need for redemption. That's interesting. Yeah, so so because because you'd want to point to the curse, right? God cursed right. the, the yeah. ground because of you, but the curse wasn't like and and take that and here's another hurricane. Right. But it's it's here's meant why. to lead you to repentance. If natural evil is the way you pay for moral evil, then you don't need it, Christ. Yeah, yeah, you've you've you dealt with it with your old age. Precisely. Yeah, yeah you already paid for it. So sure. and also it doesn't fit the crime, so to speak. Like mm. you violated God's law, so you get wrinkles. So what's the connection <laughs> between those, right? Yeah. But instead, it's it's meant to be. There's a there's a, a kind of symbolic relationship, just like you're spiritually dead, mm-hmm. I'll be physically dying also. Yeah. And that makes you that's makes you think and 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 that that really is the motivating thing for any philosopher. If you dig, usually not to dig very deep. Usually it's right on the surface. A philosopher yeah. will just say, the problem of evil bugs me. Yeah. That's what gets everyone thinking. Yeah. That's the biggest challenge. And that's why Hume's dialogues are great, because he has these great parts in there, chapters in there about the problem of evil. He doesn't let you off with easy answers. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so so important. And I've heard from I've heard from some like cultural critics and like some 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 pastors who are culturally engaged that you know that the questions have changed and it used to be the problem of evil and now it's starting to be you know this problem or or, or that and it's to me it's like dude deep down we all the problem of evil is what yeah. hits us you know it's yeah it's some it's somehow related to that I mean the problem of healthcare. Is the mm. problem evil, right? Like, yeah, I'm sick. I want to have healthcare, so I'm not sick anymore. Dude. So, any, any problem you can see coming up is not a far step. It's not like it takes ten steps. It's like right there. People yeah. are suffering, injustice. And they why? And yeah. then the problem isn't just I want to get over it. Right. We want to make sense of it. Like, why am I suffering if there, if God is so good? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think that actually that hits on a point that. I think I want to make that, you know, we are, we're like the why animals. We're like, yeah. we're all philosophers in that sense. We're not all good philosophers, but we all want to know why. And it's not right. enough just to have, uh, to be a, a mollified or assuaged or anything. We want it. We want answers to stuff. We yeah. need to know why. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, I think so. I think that that gets to our most basic need is the need for meaning. Yeah. Oh, and that's, prov- that's a great way. You can provide yeah. everything else for somebody. If they don't have meaning, mm. they'll, they'll, they'll reject it. They won't want it. That's so good. I love that. So, go, getting back to the to the dialogue, then has this influenced your uh, your view, your take on natural theology, or did it confirm it? What has this done to your maybe the first time you read it or a couple times? How yeah. has this influenced your take on natural theology? Well, in, 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 instead of what I just said about meaning, 
is connected with what Hume's doing, which is when, when challenges come up to your belief, mm-hmm. it, if you don't respond, it loses meaning. And so you can, it no longer provides you with what you want and you'll turn away from it. Cause mm-hmm. I'm also interested in that. I'm interested in, in conversion stories, but also deconversion stories. Yeah. Why do people turn away from the faith? And it's always connected with it lost meaning for me. Mm-hmm. That's why I want to go and look at, all right, what are the best challenges we can look at? Because if we can respond to those, we can retain meaning. That's, I think that's a really interesting point. I want to, I want to draw a little bit because again, um, I hope that I'm not being like uncharitable to pastors, but I, I, I love my pastors. I love the pastors I've had, but I've, I've heard a lot of, uh, a lot of pastors. I go to school with all pastors, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm like a philosopher trapped in a, in a pastor school, uh, wanting to be a philosopher. And uh, there's a lot of corners that get cut and you say, you know, this guy's struggling with doubt. And, and then they're kind of like jokey, uh, pithy answers like, well, when did they start sleeping with their girlfriend? You know, and, and there's yeah. kind of some of that that erodes. And I think there's definitely truth to that. I work with college kids and, um, yeah, I'm not too far off from being a college kid myself. And I know that's true, but I think that interesting point you just made about not answering the chart, the, the charges that come against your faith either quickly or slowly erodes yeah. the value the, and the meaning of them. So, so you're getting at like the, the person got into moral problems and then that made them question the faith. Yeah. But just take the example you gave sleeping with a girlfriend that action just in doing it indicates that they don't think the rules about who mm. to sleep with makes sense. Yeah. Like, why not? I love her. I mean, she loves me. So why not do it? So the action comes after they already think the rules have lost meaning. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting point. And I think that's an important point because there's been a lot of downplaying of the role of reason in your life. And yeah, there, if, if that is the case, well, it also has to go to your point about acrasia, right? So like if mm-hmm. if there is, if it's not possible or if it's not uh, uh, the case, then it's not, uh, I had these two conflicting ideas and I acted on this one instead, but rather that there's a little bit more like the primacy of the intellect at play where right. you didn't have good enough reasons for it or a, a misconception right. and yeah, that right. gave rise to your moral and then it probably helped erode and down and yeah. down we went. A spiral. Yeah, so right, it's, it does affirm the role of the intellect because what we're talking about in Acracia is moral choices. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not unconscious habits we're talking about. We're talking about a moral choice, which means I picked this over that, which yeah. means I valued this over that. And so once you say that, you picked what you thought at the time was good, yeah. more valuable. Right. Now, you might immediately – the reason why Acracia is a problem for people is that almost immediately on a lot of our bad choices, we have 20-20 hindsight. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, I knew I shouldn't have picked that. That's not true. If you knew you shouldn't have picked it, then you wouldn't have picked it. Yeah. So I analyze a couple of examples. Uh, famous one is Augustine and the pears. Yeah. He has this discussion where he's out with his friends and there's this pear tree in a neighbor's yard and it doesn't have, he doesn't even have good pears. He has better pears at home. Yeah. But he and his friends just jump the fence and steal the pears because they want to do something wrong. And they throw them away. They don't even eat yeah, them, right? toss them to the pigs. Yeah. Yeah. So I analyze that to say, look, isn't that a perfect example of he knew it was wrong to steal and he did it anyway? Yeah. Well, all right. So that's what you mentioned earlier, competing beliefs. He knew there's a rule system about stealing, Mm -hmm. but he also believed having reckless fun with your friends is more important. Yeah. So he did what he thought was good, which is having this kind of fun with your friends. Yeah. So so, so that's always when you once you analyze the choices, you see, yeah, everyone does what you you think is good at the time. Now, if the police show up and you're arrested, then you say, oh, I knew I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Right. But now, why is that important? It's not just an obscure point. Here's why it's important. Mm. Our beliefs affect our choices. 
if we don't know what is good, we won't be able to purposefully pick what is good, choose what is good. Mm -hmm. So here's why I spent time on that problem is I want to see Matthew, you better know what is good. If you don't know what is good, you won't be able to get what is good. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. So not to jump the gun or anything, but you, you had mentioned that you, there, the, uh, did you call it the uh, inexcusability of unbelief? So um, with that notion, do you, do you hold that everyone knows the, the, the good they ought to do? Yeah, so that those are these are related. The, the yeah. weakness of the will and the inexcusability of unbelief. And I use this word. I said, "You you better know what is good." Mm-hmm. And so that's an ambiguous word, right? People sure. when they say something like, "I knew I shouldn't have done it," they're using it in a very weak way. Yeah, like I was aware there were possible consequences, and I took the risk anyway. Yeah, which is not really knowledge when we're talking in philosophy. What, what right. counts as knowledge? Sure. So, in the sense that I would use knowledge, which is you have a true justified belief. Mm-hmm. And I say you never knowingly do evil. I mean, you never act against a true justified belief. You might act against opinions you have. Mm-hmm. So you might you might say, I think we should usually keep the law, and I'm not going to keep the law. You can do that. Yeah. But you can't act against knowledge where you have a true justified belief. And in the same way, uh, do I think everyone has that about the good? No, I don't. And it'd be easy to show that by asking people. Okay. What well, do you think? So- good? And they, they say, I don't know. Or they might give you, even if they give you the right answer, they say, uh, to glorify God. Well, why do you think that? I don't know. My Sunday school teacher taught me. <laughs> right. So, um, so if that's the case, then, and some people don't know the good that they are, like that the son, someone bottom I'll just say that's God, right? Because I believe that's true. Um, they don't know that. Then why is their unbelief inexcusable? So, so that's what is called culpable ignorance. Okay. Right. Ah. Okay. Okay. So they you go to court, yeah. and you and you say. Uh, Hey, judge, I didn't know the speed limit. You can't give me a ticket. He doesn't say, oh, good point. He says, well, I'm going to give you two tickets now, right? For, <laughs> for, for not knowing the speed limit because you should have known the speed limit. Yeah, you ought to have known. Okay. Yeah. Um, you should have known you didn't. You exchanged your knowledge of God for idolatry. Yeah. Yeah, that exchange is good. So so some more biblical language from, from like Romans 1. Yeah, um, it's hinting at that. Yeah, so you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Yep. Do you, how do you read that? Is that... Um, is that the, they do have this knowledge, but they're pushing it down? Or is that, you know, our ancestors had this knowledge, but we haven't inherited that? What, what's your thought? You've done so much work, you know. Well, some combination of what you just said. So okay. I do think it's historical. It's not talking about all people at every moment. Interesting. Okay. In that passage, right? So it's talking about there was a time when they had this, which they then exchanged it. And the suppression, I don't take that primarily as within an individual's mind. Okay. I take that as in society. So how does society stop the truth? Well, they don't have any TV shows about it. They don't have any songs about it. They don't have any classes about it. It's suppressed. Yeah, That's a suppression. Not, I believe it in my mind, and I somehow stop myself from believing it in my mind at the same time. That's an interesting point, uh, uh, take on it. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely more in the Van Til camp, and, and there's there's an active suppression from, from what I've heard, from what I've, when I read Romans 1. And so you're saying that, I, I think it's a consistent uh, argument, too. I think it's really good that, Society has done it, and they've done it in various ways by uh, promoting uh, contrary worldviews yeah, by teaching, idolatry. Yeah, yeah, teaching it in our science books, teaching you know not teaching God and suppressing it. And so then, I think what what certain people would want to say to you then is, well, then they can't be held responsible because they don't have this knowledge. But you're saying no, they're you're they're culpable for what they ought to have known. Can you use that yeah, word? Would, would yeah, you should know the yeah. eternal power and divine nature of God. You are. And, and this is like the basis of any law. 
Yeah. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. You can't yeah. go to court and say, I didn't know. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You should have known the law. You you had some, I forgot what kind of culpability you said. Something culpability. Uh, culpable ignorance. Oh, culpable ignorance. Yeah, yeah. I like so that. The, yeah, the idea seems to be, in, in, in what you call the Van Tilling description, is that you're only guilty if you act against knowledge. Yeah. Now, as I point out, you can't act against knowledge. You can act against an opinion, but not knowledge. Yeah. And that's not really the basis of, of culpability anyway. The basis of culpability is that you didn't believe something which you should have believed. That's, that's a, why you're guilty. Yeah, you said something else point. is eternal besides God. Yeah. I don't know. The the acting, not acting against knowledge point is interesting to me. So I know um, if you're if you're a more Bonsinian, Ventilian, you'd say you do and you don't know. There's a second order belief and you're suppressing the truth and the righteous. You know, I don't I don't know where I where I fall on that. But um not acting against knowledge. I'm trying to think if I can come up with like a counter counter example. Um the key word is knowledge, right? Because the counterexample yeah. is almost always just be, I believe I shouldn't steal, but I also believe I should have phone my friend. Okay, yeah, you can have two competing opinions. So let's see. I wonder I wonder if we, if we can get bogged down in some um, like trolley problem kind of stuff or, you know, like uh, you're, you're hiding Jews in your, in your house. You know that you shouldn't lie, but you also know – that you should protect the innocent. Yeah, that's from a higher slaughter. law. There's a higher law that overrides whatever the. Ah, uh, okay. So there's still there's still a hierarchy by which you you're choosing, but but you're still wouldn't you still be acting against knowledge, even though it's the right thing to do because you're you're you have a hierarchy of of knowledge. Well, I don't think I don't think the right thing to do could ever be against knowledge. So in the situations ah. like that, I don't think you. I think you're saying there's. This person comes to my door mm-hmm. if, and asks if I have Jews in the house. The authority that they're basing their request on is illegitimate. Yep. And I don't have to respond to it. There's a higher law above them that I have to respond to. And so lying to them, you're not culpable for it because they're illegitimate and there's another there's a higher good at play that you have knowledge of. Yeah, I mean, there's other options. So, so they want to – the examples want to pin you. And say you either tell a lie or you tell mm-hmm. the truth. There's other options. They say I don't recognize your authority. I'm not lying to them. Then I'm telling them the truth. Oh, okay, yeah. And I'll say, that, well, we'll kill you if you don't recognize your authority. Well, they'll kill you if you tell them you have Jews in the house too. So say, so, yeah, I don't recognize your authority. I think you're illegitimate. Yeah, that's not a lie. There's other options. Interesting. Okay, that's good. That's really good. I'm learn, learning a ton here right now. Yeah. But so, necessarily going back to Bonson because he wrote his dissertation on self-deception. Right. I think self-deception is a real thing. Okay. But not about knowledge. You can't deceive yourself about about the knowledge you have. Yeah, knowledge requires an active ability to have an a, give an account to give proof that you do know it. It's not just an opinion. So you don't deceive yourself about that, but you do deceive yourself about your condition as a sinner. Okay. So you're familiar with like dox, doxastic volunteerism that you're, yeah. you're, you're like choosing. So um, you're not a doxastic. You, you don't think you can choose what you believe, right? Or is that- some things you can and some things you can't. Okay. My dissertation advisor said this. I want to believe in God. He was raised a Christian, went through a deconversion experience. He went to Yale and uh, went through a deconversion experience because of the problem of evil. Okay. And I said, I want to believe in God. I think God's a great idea. But because of evil in the world, I can't believe in God. Mm-hmm. So that's an example where he, he wishes he could choose to believe it, and he can't because of the evidence. But there's some yeah. other, there might be some examples where you could choose to believe something. But as soon as counter evidence is given to you, your mind has to wrestle with that. Yeah. And that is where, I mean, there is self-deception that comes in in this way. 
Psalm 19 likens general revelation to the sun and you can't get away from the light of the sun. It's everywhere. Yeah. So your mind, if you, if you don't accept the revelation of God in general revelation, you're going to have to come up with something else. And that's what the, the, uh, uh, exchanging the glory of God for idols is. Yeah. Okay. So going back to your, your uh, advisor there, do you, how do you analyze his his deconversion? So, d- do you think that he had knowledge of God when he was a Christian? I know it's it's hard to get into you know yeah. his his psychology there, but just personally, would you have to say if you were able to deconvert, then you didn't have knowledge because you can't act against knowledge? Well, I, yeah, I do think you could have it and lose it. Okay, but in his case, I don't I don't think it was the thing where he he once had a solution to the problem, but then he forgot it. I think. He was raised and somehow going through youth group, going through church. No one gave him a solution to the problem of evil. Yeah. And when he heard it, he lost it. I mean, it's very similar to uh, – there's a few other prominent persons. What's the fellow who does the Gnostic Gospels? Bart uh, Ehrman. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Ehrman. He had a similar thing, right? He he, he went to uh, – I think he went to Moody Bible Institute. Moody and he – I think he went to Wheaton too. I know it was like two of the big evangelical Yeah, ones, yeah. So, so – so, it, it, it doesn't surprise me going back to my work on Hume because I I'm familiar with the answers out there mm-hmm. and, and, and Hume shows us those aren't sufficient. You're going to have to do more. Yeah. Just think about what the common answers are free will. We can't know now we'll know in heaven. There's more good than evil. God's doing the best he can. Some form of open theism. Yeah. And, uh, this is the best he could make. Uh, or, or ultimately, the ultimate principle is amoral. Let's say our, our concepts of good and evil don't apply to God. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of Gordon Clark ex lex kind of thing. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So those are the common ones. Those, are the, those are all addressed by Hume to show yeah. no, those don't work. Hmm. Those don't get us out of the difficulty. So, so you're going with what? What I, I'm really interested in, in doing too is uh, I don't know how to, how to call it the Westminster answer. Uh, yeah, let's call it that. But so. If you look at the confession, the first chapter, the mm-hmm. first uh, paragraph of the first chapter, so one one says the light of nature and the works of creation and providence reveal God. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't give you the knowledge needed for redemption, right, because that's right. a separate problem. The problem yeah. of redemption comes up because you rejected general revelation. Yeah, but that's there. Two two goes over the glory of God. Chapter two, paragraph two. Then three three does the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then four one, which is about creation. Why did God create for the revelation of His glory? Yeah. Five one, providence. Why does God rule for the revelation of His glory? And then six one, the problem of evil. Why did God permit evil for the revelation of His glory? So yeah, we can call that the Westminster Confession answer. It should be the Reformed answer. So you should be expecting the Reformed guys to have that right off the top of their head. Yeah, sure. So, so now if you say what's the Reformed answer, you'll get something like. Well, for all we know, there's some greater good, and there's no problem of logical problems. They like, no, that that's a weak thing. That's not that's not the yeah. answer you want. Well, did did let's say uh, did the Westminster answer? Did this one uh, not was it not addressed by Hume? He he didn't talk about it. And in... he does something like what William James does. William James is raised in New England, has that background. Yeah, but there's a kind of quick dismissal of the glory of God. In this sense, glory is taken to mean vain glory. Okay. So if you, so for a human, if I was going around all the time and I keep emailing you and telling you how great I am, <laughs> right. you haven't been a show, I'm great. Yeah. What would you think of me? You'd be like, man, that guy's. 
Right. If some guy goes around promoting his podcast all the time. uh, Yeah. Right. (laughs) But but so they take that to be about God, right? So God's God just has to keep telling us, Hey, I'm really great. You should worship me. Mm. And so it's a a misconception of what's meant by the glory of God. uh, A word might, that might help it out is excellence. Mm. God does something. It's excellent. And when you see excellence, your response is just automatic. You're just like, wow, that's excellent. That's you think if someone sees a great sports play, you don't have to go in the audience and tell them, hey, you should clap at what you just saw. They just <laughs> yeah. blow up, right? Yeah, that's the appropriate response uh, to yeah. see. Uh, to, to right. see right. So it's not that God's, God needs us to worship him to feel good about himself. It's that when right. God created the world, it was very good. Yeah. And the way God rules in the face of human rebellion and, and evil is very good. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I love the sports analogy because I it, immediately when you said excellence, I thought of like a gymnast doing, you know, yeah. just crushing it. And you're like, yeah. yes, that's that gets you fired up. Yep. Yeah. So so that's a really good point. I, I wonder, too. Um, that's kind of like the the uh, Jonathan Edwards type answer where it's like it's it's best for us to worship God, you know, because if, yeah. we, if, if we if God had any other standard in mind than his own glory, then. He'd be an idolater, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I've, I've had some pushback yeah. on that lately. Well, there's, it's, it's our own good also, because sometimes people right. critique that and say, that's egocentric. You're looking mm-hmm. at what is your good. Right. But it, it turns out they overlap. So I, I call this, the Westminster answer is fine, but I also call it the doxological solution. Okay. So yeah, the no, solution is in the glory of God. Yeah, glory. And, yeah. and our, our highest good is in knowing what is eternal. Hmm. That's just, that's what, as rational beings, that's what we want to do is know what's eternal that's our highest good. And the revel- and the creation reveals that to us. It, that was the original creation or the original purpose of creation was to reveal God to us. So this is in contrast. I hear, I hear sometimes people who are, they're well-intentioned. They want to defend natural theology, but they'll say something like this. Natural theology just gives us a bare shadow to direct us to God, who's then in scripture. Right. And I'm, I'm seeing the opposite. General revelation is full. It tells you about who God is. And because you rejected that, you need Christ who then returns you to that revelation. Yeah. And so, so traditionally from, from the, the Westminster folks that, that I am in contact with general revelation has provided knowledge and, and there's this fullness of knowledge and that's what you're responsible for. And so you, you know, you say no one goes to hell for, for rejecting Christ. Everyone goes to hell for rejecting the, the knowledge that they have in, in yeah. creation. Your answer is a little bit different that, yeah. um, whether you have it right now or not, humanity has suppressed it, and uh, you are culpable because you ought to have had that knowledge. You should have known it. Is, and but I do want to. This is why I start off with the clarity of God's reasons because I don't want to. The view you're describing it narrows generation down to just culpability. Okay. Yeah. And I'm saying that is there, but generation is a source of life, of the knowledge of God. So it's mm. not only the negative side, it's also the positive side. It's the source of our greatest blessing. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest God to us. We should know yeah. those things. So so um, can we talk special revelation? Where, yeah. So what, what role, because I, I can, I'm just hearing it myself, but I can imagine people chiming in saying, you know, no, special revelation, because he's he's actively revealing himself in ways that general revelation hasn't or can't because you know we need divine speech acts uh what what, what place does ge- uh special revelation have in in your conception here well i say because just the first paragraph of the westminster confession because we rejected clear general revelation we need redemptive revelation 
to be restored. So that redemptive revelation deepens the revelation. Mm -hmm. uh, that's also what I mentioned from chapter 6.1. Why did God permit evil? Because it, it reveals his justice and mercy in a way that you never would have known. Yeah. Before. So the revelation is deepened in scripture, but it, it's not going to help you at all. If you minimize general revelation and you say, the only point of general revelation is that you go to heck. We'll keep it G rated on your show. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, and, uh, you need scripture to really get to heaven. Well, now yeah. you've already messed up because you're making heaven the goal instead of knowledge of the glory of God, the goal. Those are different. Uh, yeah, no, that's, and that's a really important point that I have to stress in my ministry all the time that no, it's not Simpsons theology. We're not, the goal is not to be floating around playing a harp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's his glory and we get blessed through that. And there's a new earth too. <laughs> we all right, forget yeah, yeah, in America. Yeah, that, I do, heaven seems to mean the, in people speaking, when you die, you go to heaven, which means it's after death, before the resurrection. Mm -hmm. So it has those who those who make heaven the goal have that kind of Greek dualistic sense to them where they're forgetting. No, you get your body back. See, the Greek right. dualists didn't want their body back. All the right. sources of suffering was the body. Mm -hmm. You want to get out of the body. It's a lot right. like reincarnation. Also, you don't you don't sometimes in the West, people talk about reincarnation like a good thing. But in, mm -hmm. in Eastern religion, you don't want to keep reincarnating. You want to right. escape it. Right. But that's yeah. not what Christianity teaches. It teaches you'll be resurrected from the dead. And that, that the body is a good thing to embrace, that it's yeah. it's natural and good that we are embodied, enfleshed spirits, however you want right. to, yeah. psychosomatic unity, however you want to you parse that. Uh, yeah, that's that's such an important point. And so I'm just, to me already, I've realized I need to, to get into the, uh, the Westminster uh, Confession and catechisms uh, more deeply. Because this is these are the kind of answers that I want to give, and it's like they've been here this whole time. Why? Yeah, that's the thing is, is this is I call it historic Christianity. I mean, this has been yeah. there. The Christians in the past did a great amount of work to put this together. Yeah, we should use it. Yeah. Well, why do you think it, it hasn't been? Why is that not the standard answer from Christians? Well, I think a couple of things. It's interesting how how quickly and early the Westminster Confession was influential in the English colonies in America. Mm -hmm. So by contrast, it because of the English civil war and then the restoration of the Catholic monarchy, it become, it became not very important in England. So it's mm -hmm. had its most of its influence in America. Yeah. But then I mentioned guys like William James, I think the 19th century saw a number of challenges that got raised up, which weren't adequately responded to the, the response could be put under the umbrella of fideism. Is this like ev evolution would, would fit in that category? Yeah, I think they're geological, biological, archaeological. I mean, people start finding books like the Gilgamesh. Mm -hmm. And oh, somehow yeah. that, that was problematic. They say, look, there's other stories besides Genesis. Yeah. So why should we believe Genesis? So something like that started happening. And then um, in uh, politics, there's challenges to the uh, what outdated political theories that might be associated with uh, the Westminster Confession. And then in uh, human society and changes in how we do work. So all, yeah. all these changes happening in the 19th century. And that, that I think, I think Hume, he, he's before that, but he helps uh, put some of those philosophical challenges in one place for us. Yeah. I've, I've heard um, some, some scholars say that uh, the reason that those kind of responses weren't uh, met, uh, uh, those kind of challenges weren't, weren't critiqued and met uh, and destroyed was because this commitment um, to common sense realism, Scottish common sense realism. Yeah. You, you, you've heard that before? Oh yeah. I go over that in my book. I think yeah. in my book on old school Princeton, I think that's a big, that's a hindrance, a shortcoming. And unfortunately I want you mad at me, but it's the same family of shortcoming that you'll find in Van Til. Hmm. 
Okay. And so that's why, and also planning. That's the point of my book is to say, there's a family here, a family of thought here that's going on that we need to overcome so we can respond to these challenges. Yeah. That's interesting because uh, Ventilians would be like, yeah, the, the, the Scottish common sense and that tradition that's followed along uh, into planning a is the problem. And, and you're, you'd say, no, you're, you're part of that as well. Ventil. In this sense, something you've already brought up before, everyone already knows God deep down. Mm-hmm. You don't need to respond to challenges to belief in God because Hume knows God exists. I mean, Hume was catechized, presumably, being raised in Scotland. For, for sure he was, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but so he knew it was true. The problem is your will. You're actively in rebellion against what you know is true. Hmm. That's the same as – that's Scottish common sense. That's uh, Van Til's reading of it. Yeah. Planning, planning is a little bit different, but he said you have these basic beliefs which are warranted in believing. Yeah, Planning his point is is interesting about the census divinitatis being a a cognitive faculty that's malfunctioning. Yeah. yeah. Which, which so that that would just be begging the question, right? You'd have to if God exists, then we have a census divinitatis, which tells us God exists. Yeah. Well, how do we know if God exists? Because our census divinitatis. Well, yeah. how do we have one? Because God made us that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, wait, that's that's a little tiny. That's not even a big circle. We sometimes <laughs> we try to hide begging the question in big circles. That's just a yeah. two-step circle. Yeah, is a line like that in warranted Christian belief. Uh, our beliefs are warranted. A warranted belief is when you're believing according to a design plan aimed at truth. And yeah, a design plan means God designed you. Design plan, yeah, in the in the right cognitive environment, yeah, yeah. So, so you're presuming in the definition for belief in God, you're importing designer. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Um... I wonder if there's a Plantingian listening right now that would say, well, in the, the design plan doesn't uh, presuppose a designer because a naturalist can believe in a design plan without a designer. The, the designer is, uh, you know, random chance acting on matter over time. Uh, well, that thing you just said, mm-hmm. random chance acting, if that counts as design, then what does the word design mean? Like, yeah, random chance over time is the opposite of a design, right? By definition. Well, and I think that that's, why planning a dumps in his uh, evolutionary argument against naturalism saying like, we can all start with the design plan. I, you know, um, uh, Dawkins would say uh, in his book, the blind watchmaker. And in that he's got like this sense of a, a blind watchmaker, a des- blind designer. And, and it's uh, designing us to fit in this cognitive environment. And then planning is saying, well, if you, if that's your view of a non-rational or irrational, non-rational designer, then you can't trust your cognitive faculties. So I think that would be his point. And I want to be charitable because I, I, I'm not a planting yet. Well, I do too. Yeah. yeah I want to uh, be charitable. Of course. But yeah. Sorry. The reason, why, the, the reason why I think we could be a little bit harder is in this sense. Okay. In the discussion, we're all believers. Mm-hmm. So someone might say, hey, because of that, let's be gentle. I'm doing the other way of saying, look, no, we need to make sure it's like we're on the team preparing to meet the Yankees in the Super in the, the Super Bowl in the uh, World Series. Yeah. And someone says, Hey, why are you pitching so fast at practice, man? It's like yeah. because the Yankees are gonna pitch fast at practice. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. I I um I am very uh wary of putting my neck out to getting out in front of my skis because I've done it in the past and I get hammered and it's like, dude, okay. Yeah. So yeah, I'll just I'll just claim claim some ignorance in there and and say that if I were a Plantingian uh, who is a little bit sharper than I am, they might have an answer. I I don't see it right now because I'm I'm tending to agree with you on this point. But yeah, yeah. well, I'm sure there. I mean, yeah, 
they would have just stand there going, uh, right? <laughs> they have some answer, but the question right. is, can the answer avoid the circularity? What sure. Plantinga does is he responds in an academic setting, which is just coming out of logical positivism. Mm-hmm. And so it took, it took for granted, there is no God and only material facts about the material world are the only things that are real. Yeah. So he's responding to that to show your guys' beliefs aren't any different than the guys who believe in God. Right. And so he's destroying that previous justification for unbelief, which is a great argument. That's good. Yeah. yeah. But then it doesn't take us where, where else we need to go. So you can say, yes, that does get rid of and respond to logical positivism, but we need to go further. We need to just get to deciding going further. It's yeah. 1.1 in the confessions, the very beginning of Christianity. Yeah. So that's, that's where I'm, I'm a little confused on where you're at. Uh, and it's, it's my fault, not yours, but, um, so uh, some of the folks that I hear um, in in the Presbyterian camp wanting to go back, uh, I forgot his name right now. Reforming apologetics, they they want oh, to yeah, go, John Fesco. Yeah, yeah, Fesco. Uh, that that type of guy wants to go back to like a, a Turretin and say, you know, this is where we we went wrong after him. We should have been going back to Aristotle and um, not not necessarily right but Aristotle as interpreted by Aquinas and then the natural the book of nature and the book of exactly exactly or, but you're not arguing that right because you're certainly saying... I have I had had fesco out to ASU and I have a his talk and our discussion on my YouTube page I mentioned earlier if oh interesting I'll have, to, I'll have to check that because, out yeah you might say we're pretty close book of nature yeah okay. uh, as well as book of relation but I still think a couple things come up how far does the book of nature get us? I think he was mm-hmm. still hold, or I'll just, let me just talk to this view, not to him particularly, sure, but sure. still hold that it's very vague. Okay. And 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 uh, gets us to kind of a shadow, and we need scripture to fill in the details. I think what the details scripture fills in are these: How will God be both just and merciful to humans as sinners? Mm-hmm. That's something you couldn't know from generation. You have to have scripture tell you. Okay. And the answer is the exact same act is the height of God's justice and the height of God's mercy. Amen, man. Yeah. yeah so that's wrong. the answer you get in scripture, which you couldn't get from general revelation. So okay. I, I don't think you don't think you could deduce scripture from general revelation or anything like that. How, how about, I think how about the Trinity? You full, I think you can get you can get the whole definition of God that I went over from the fourth question from general revelation. You you can know God. You were supposed to know God from general revelation. Yeah. Um so you know Aquinas says um yes you can know God from general revelation, but his Trinitarian or his triune nature is something that's only uh, able to, you're able to know through general uh, special revelation. Do, do you follow him there? Is that? Yeah. What you just said is true, but I, I think Aquinas says, unfortunately he says some other things like this. You can know God, but only really the smart people can. And that's what some arguments are provided for, hmm. but most people can't or they need the Bible. Un, that would undo our need for Christ right there. Yeah, you need Christ because everybody, and, and you, you bring up, well, what about babies? Everybody can know God from general revelation, and they mm-hmm. have rejected God. That's why everybody needs Christ. Yeah, and interesting, Locke is a little different. So that Aquinas says that only the only the really smart people can know God that way. Locke says everybody could, except for they're too busy. So mm-hmm. interesting shift into the Enlightenment. Um, that is people can know God, but they're too busy, so they just need a quick book, like. Like you can't spend all your time doing philosophy. So God gave you, a, gave you the gospel of John. Yeah. That that's interesting. It sounds a little bit like Pascal about the busyness thing, but I don't think, I think Pascal would, wouldn't be uh, as much of a rationalist as, as Locke in that point. But so um, like, do you think that general revelation uh, gets us to a vague idea of God? No, I think it'd be full 
and clear. So full meaning you yeah. get a, a deep knowledge of God. Yeah. Um, you can look in, in a, caught me without my confession, chapter 21 on religious worship yeah. goes over how, what you can know about God from the light, just the light of nature alone mm -hmm. is a lot. And it's enough to distinguish between uh, Yahweh and Allah? Uh, yeah. Okay. You, you'd know that before you get to scripture. You wouldn't need to do proof texting on that point. You'd get to that point by the justice of God. The nature of justice is such that you can't set aside the requirement of a payment. That's not just anymore. Yeah. Justice must be met with a payment. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it makes sense for sure. Because to, to not act on it would be unjust. Yeah. So that's why uh, I like Aristotle you know, for a lot of things, but he's a dualist. He believes the material world existed from eternity. Mm -hmm. And any argument you pull out of Aristotle only gets you to the demiurge. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, doesn't get you to theism. I, I think we can get to theism. Yeah. So, but, but when it comes to, you know, the triune uh, nature of God. Yeah. That's um, revealed religion. Okay. Revealed religion. So yeah, not, not a part of the dual of nature of Christ, Trinity, uh, those things are, you need scripture for. That's why I said it deepens the revelation. It's not just restoring. Yeah. It does deepen the revelation. It gives you more revelation, but the, rev the the more it's giving you is about how you rejected what's clear about God, and here's what He's doing to to make it right. Yeah. So uh, when you speak about the the perspic perspicuity of general revelation, I like that. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The perspicuity of Scripture. Yeah, yeah, right. So when you when you speak of that, I don't want to. Uh, in my mind, I'm assuming that you're talking cosmological, teleological, but maybe you're not. What what, what do you have in mind? Are they arguments? Is it just like yeah. direct awareness? Uh, yeah. What do you got in mind there? Good question. Let's work through that. So the, the, the point, I take it this way, to illustrate it, not as a proof text, but Romans 1 it says the eternal power and divine nature of God are clearly seen mm -hmm. from the things that are made. So I take the from there to be about, to be deducing it. Okay. So the eternal power, God alone has existed from eternity. Mm -hmm. Nothing else has existed from eternity. And all of the other world religions claim something else is eternal besides God. So that's the first point to show about God. That's the most basic thing you can say about God. Only God is eternal. Everything yeah. else was created. That's what distinguishes us from God. So I think you would prove that point uh, with a combination of the argument. So I think you could prove that that something has existed from eternity with a kind of ontological argument. Okay. The opposite, nothing's eternal, leads to a contradiction. And that contradiction is not possible. So there must have been something from eternity. Yeah. And then you'd show that the material world hasn't existed from eternity, and, and my own soul has not existed from eternity, because there are religions that hold to both of those. Yep. They would say, you, your soul has existed from eternity. You are God. Mm -hmm. That's the oldest temptation, actually, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's you right. You could be God. Um, so say, no, you use a kind of cosmal argument argument to show those. So you're using it as a step. Instead of using one argument to get you theism, mm -hmm. you're using each argument to get you one of the pieces of theism. So something is eternal, ontological argument. It's not myself or the material world, cosmological argument. And then the moral properties of God from a kind of teleological argument. Oh, okay. From a teleological. That's interesting. So um, just when that – something in that sentence reminded me uh, – of like cumulative case kind of apologetics. Do you consider yourself in that camp or? Yeah, it could be like that, except for this, the cumulative case usually refers to something like I have a bunch of arguments. None of them by themselves prove anything. 
uh-huh. because I have so many that that must give me something, right? Yeah. And, and so, no, I don't hold it. I think each one of these gets you a certain conclusion and you move from that certainty to the next certainty. So you're right. There is a kind of cumulative case, just in the sense that you're taking steps. Okay. I think what happens is we might get too greedy with our arguments. We want to say, the ontological argument gets me all of theism and it doesn't. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I've definitely Or the cosmological gives me all of this and it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I call it just, it's like a shoehorn, shoehorn argument where you, you got a pretty good point here. And then the last couple of steps and he's personal and he's this and this. Yeah, and you shoehorn it right in. So you got to do, but, but I think the way it's operating is this, and this fits the theme for us today. It's operating in response to challenges. Mm. So you're showing something's eternal because Someone comes along and says, no, I think nothing's eternal. Mm-hmm. And so you have to respond to that. Which of those is meaningful? And we were talking about that earlier, right? Yeah. The meaningfulness of belief. Can I retain this meaningfulness if someone says, I think there was once only nothing and then an uncaused event made everything else. Yeah. And so you need to build a response to that. And someone else says, no, I, I believe there's something eternal, but it's just the material world. It's always existed. Yeah. So that's a really interesting point, and it makes me think back to dialogues concerning uh, natural religion, because the dialogical nature of of so much yeah. of, of our knowledge, just like you're talking about there, yeah. but also when it comes to uh, all the heresies. And so, you know, how do we yeah. how, how, how have we how do we have a council on, on you know, uh, Christ two natures? Well, because heretics came up and we had a dialogue against that. You know, yeah. it was polemical, but we had to we had to talk about that. And so yeah, that's how it works. I, I think it's like uh, yeah the the what we owe to heretics is is yeah. pretty pretty great uh, in that sense. But I wonder you know it's prior- kind of what the Ephesians four speaking about the pastor excuse me pastor teachers yeah who uh, there's a process that they go through much discussions illustrated in Acts fifteen hmm. and a challenge gets brought up which is every Christian has to be circumcised and the pastors have a council. And pastor elders, and they discuss it and come to their conclusion, which they then publish to the churches. Yeah. So, so I I love that. I I, I really like the dialogical nature there. I wonder though. I hear my students, uh, my, my athletes that I disciple in my head, who go, "Yeah, look, see, that means that you know we have the yin and the yang, where we need evil in order to greater understand the good." Yeah. And so I'm wondering, you know, prior to the fall, uh, how how would Adam come to know? That God is uh, infinite, if that's a, a attribute that you hold. First, I guess, yeah. do you hold, do you believe God's infinite? Yeah, eternal, okay. infinite, eternal, unchanging. I think they all go together. You can't, okay. you couldn't have God existed from eternity, but He's still learning things. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I hold that too. I know some people want to parse that out and say, uh, you know, like Keith Andel, I think wants to say that, that wanted to say that God is not infinite, but but anyway, so. Prior to the fall, prior to having a uh, dialogue partner to come along and say God's finite or, you know, whatever you want to parse, how does Adam figuring out from general revelation that God is infinite? Yeah, well, just like we're doing, I mean, the dialogue partner doesn't have to be someone negatively holding a view. Okay. Right. You don't have to have, for, for example, uh, the, 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 what you're actually saying right now, I think, is what the um, Luciferians say about why you need the devil. Right. Yeah. He's for us because he points out other possibilities which makes us grow and if you didn't have that you'd have no growth right and that's well, that's an argument i hear on campus all the time and it's yeah. it's weird to, to think where is that coming from <laughs> like, yeah well you can have growth without uh you can have positive growth because you're dialoguing together like a socratic dialogue you're, you're throwing out ideas you're wrestling mm-hmm. through them so the heretics can't say hey you needed us because right. hey arius you could have just brought the question up and wrestled through it you didn't have to actually try to teach others that it's true 
That's a great point. Yeah. So bringing it, so there's not necessarily something uh, impious in saying, well, what if it's like this? And right. then, no, no, not at all. That's what we should do. We should we ask, ask those questions? So that's interesting because sometimes doubt, people say it's wrong to doubt. And it, like everything else, it depends what you mean by the word doubt, right? Right. So, so wrestling through stuff, thinking through problems is not wrong at all. You should do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that's, um, you actually just made a, a great point that uh, Graham Cole made. Uh, theologian here at TED's, we were doing a uh, ST symposium, and I asked him about open theism, um, and I was like, "So, you know, what 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 should have been done about that?" And he's like, "Well, I wish that they would have just brought it up as a topic for discussion instead mm-hmm. of saying this is the way it is, and if you don't believe this, then your view of God is immoral and blah blah blah." Yeah. And he's like, "If they would have brought it forward as as a, a he said some Latin word, probably like disputatio or something yeah. as, as a disputation thesis, then we would have all been better off wrestling yeah. through this idea. That or also just going back and looking, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm. So that's what we're talking about with the Westminster confession. Hey, yeah. a lot of work was done for us. You just go right. back and, and remember that. It's like, yeah. like, like you have to go back and remember like every time a mechanic is trained, they have to start on a model T. <laughs> like, no, I mean, we're way past that. Now we can build on what's been done since then. Yeah. So yeah, you don't have to go back and and re relive questions about the deity of Christ. So that was already done. They they spent a century on that and did a lot of work on it. Yeah, that's so that's a really important point. It's actually, I don't want to just keep uh, only talking about the the Westminster divines or anything, but it's in, it's impressive how brilliant they were. You know, there's a lot of work. Yeah, that there's a lot put into those chapters. Given how you think it's relatively short, mm-hmm. but those chapters and especially when you start to think about like I. I named that the book I brought up earlier, one of my books, the natural moral law. Yeah. Because in the large, both the larger and the shorter catechism, but particularly look at the, sh- the larger catechism, it shows how the 10 commandments are a summary of the moral law, which is written on our heart. Mm-hmm. So that's a good point right there to say the 10 commandments weren't instituted at Sinai. These were always there. They're written on our heart. Right. Hanging up with what Paul says. And also Psalm 19, the moral law. Yeah. Well, and yeah. they're just a summary of it. And you can look at the larger catechism. It expands on every single one of them and see how much depth is there in the moral law. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I wonder if, if anyone's ever brought up the charge that, that uh, to expand on the moral law, to to consider it as a you know shorthand or, or summary, and then to expand on it is, 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 would be tantamount to adding to Scripture. I wonder if that charge has been... Not that I agree or or anything. I might be if you have a kind of like a really maybe a narrow view of scripture, because what's, yeah. it would only be if what you're saying is this, the moral law is only from scripture, but mm-hmm. that, that the whole point that they're making is this moral law is from general revelation. Yeah. And here's what it says. Yeah. So they're not expanding on scripture. They're just elaborating on general revelation. Yeah. I wonder if so, the other charge might be more common would be that it's a kind of legalism. Yeah. I I've wrestled through that, so it's not as as in the forefront. I'm sure it is for a lot of people, um, yeah. for sure, is in evangelical circles, definitely. Um, I, I, I want to get in. I think this is a good transition into your your work on the natural moral law, um, and Romans two kind of stuff, uh, knowledge of the law. I, I wonder. So, with with this expanded moral law that the the Westminster divines are, are discussing, and I, I also think of C.S. Lewis's abolition of man. Uh, you familiar with that work at all? Yeah. So in the in the fourth chapter there, he's going through what he calls the Tao, and and uh, he calls it that instead of the Logos because he's trying to be 
kind of ecumenical mm-hmm. so people will, will listen to his arguments better than if he just said logos but he goes through and finds similar laws with the, the same uh, moral dictates in different religions how how do we go about adjudicating between moral imperatives that we that yeah. we would argue aren't written on our heart when a different culture says something different, what's the process? Yeah, or the other side where you say, Hey, I look at different cultures and they all say something like love your neighbor. Right. Yeah. True. So everyone has this universal law or the opposite. They all seem to be different. So how do we know which one is true? I think yeah. in both cases, they're starting at the wrong place. I think the commandments start at the right place. Okay. The law doesn't start with love your neighbor. Where does it start? Yeah. Starts with God, love God. And yeah. then you know, the difference between God and not God. That's the first commandment. Yeah. Don't call something that isn't God, God. Yeah. That And that also goes in the second commandment, uh, misrepresenting God in worship, right. especially. So that's where the law begins. And these other, the other cultures don't, we can say it this way, no human culture started that way under the fall. Yeah. We all should have started that way. So I think the, the law begins with these two things. You should act according to your nature as a rational being mm-hmm. and know God. Mm-hmm. Those go together. So I want to I want to use this to also get us into discussing reason. Yeah. And the violation, the very first sin in human history was a violation of that law. He didn't say murder your brother. That comes later. He didn't say cheat in your taxes. He said, You're God. You can be God. That's yeah. the first sin. That's the first thing they should have known. Yeah. The very first test in human history was a philosophy test. <laughs> and a true false test. I love it. You can be God, true or false. The answer should be no. And they said it is. And humans ever since then have misrepresented God. Yeah. So that's the beginning of the moral law. So I don't think comparative law gets us there because the Taoists don't start there. Mm-hmm. They say all is one. The Tao is all things. But that's why I think it is problematic for him to use the Tao because the, the Logos isn't equivalent to the Tao. Yeah. The Logos reveals God. And is God, and there's another thing called the creation. But in Taoism, all those are the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And, and for sure. And I'll, I really like Lewis. Um, yeah. Like I grew up in Lewis too. So, I mean, yeah, definitely. There's yeah. no doubt about that. When I've gone to Oxford, the first thing you do is you go to Lewis. Right, right. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, hopefully someday I'll be able to make it out there. Um, and, and that's a point where I wish he would have used logos it may not have been as persuasive but i think it would have been more accurate and uh other other folks other you know more fundamentalist folks say look he's a heretic because of this he well, look, i don't want to go there well no me neither of course well, not here's what i would say is he's in the the train of thought we've been discussing which is that the law the natural law or mm-hmm. natural theology is kind of vague we have some sense that we broke some rule and we're in trouble and we need god to tell us what the rule was and why we're in trouble and and so, are you? Do you agree with that, or do you think that it's more? I think it's a lot worse. Do you think that uh, the, the natural, I think the, the reality moral is, law is more pers- perspicuous than yeah. Lewis would. You know what? There is a clear law. You should have known it. You didn't know it, and you're in need of redemption because of that. How? So, so what we should then, do is spell out that law. That's what we, that would be great. Right. Spell out how everyone can know only yes. God is eternal. Yeah, that that's what reason shows us. Um, but so I wonder again with the, the uh, if Aquinas pops back up, and I'm 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 sure you've thought through this, but just for our listeners, for the sake of me, that uh, yeah, sure, the smart folks can know 
they can, or or if you want to bring in the lock uh, objection again, the smart yeah. folks who have time, yeah, enough leisured, to sit around a leisured class is who does philosophy. Right, those are the ones who can you know suss out what what uh, what is this natural moral law, and the rest of us are out here trying to you know eat bread by the sweat of our brow, and we don't yeah. have time. So is this something that you know Grandma Sally can do? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's always grandmas that get brought up too. Right, right, right. But you got to make her do something because uh, if she has time, then she can do She's it. Fine. The reason why is because grandma's pious mm. and sweet. Yeah. And you can't imagine she has a shortcoming. No, and you don't want to say that grandma's going to hell. <laughs> yeah, grandma's pious in one fideistic level, mm. but is grandma pious in another level? That's what we'll look at. And, and see, this is where you'll have me in a weak point. If you can get me. To start raising questions about grandma, so like, oh, that guy must be wrong. No one should raise questions about grandma. That's right. I, well, I think I, I can anticipate where you're going, and I, I, I would seem to agree. That means grandma too. Yeah. So here, yeah. So here's where I want to start. Yeah. Um, I start off with with the commandments begin with love God, which means you can distinguish God from not God. It's not enough to have a vague sense. I use an analogy of a Valentine. If you send your Valentine a vague Valentine, mm. it doesn't count. Yeah. Hey, you're pretty great at some things and I appreciate other things you do. That's not what a Valentine wants. That's if you love someone, you know who they are. You can you could pick them out of a lineup. Yeah. And the way the natural theology is talked about is that you'd have like five deities up there and you wouldn't, I don't know which one. I need the Bible to tell me which one's the real one. Yeah. No, you don't. You you should know God and be able to distinguish God from these other ones, from general revelation. And that you can't is precisely why you need Christ. Yeah. And with that same analogy, I wonder. So I receive a Valentine from someone and the someone is vague. I don't, I don't know who it's from because they weren't specific enough in, in telling me. Is who there enough were. information, you know, it's for you though. Or is uh, it vague yeah, also? Yeah. Yeah. No, it comes to my house. It's got my address, but it's not. Uh, and it describes you correctly. Cause what if it describes you incorrectly? Right, right, right. It's like so, it describes you correctly and it's vague. So you have a secret admirer. Yeah. So I'm wondering, um, that's not, that's probably not enough though, right? Like, we, yeah, I mean, well, it could be a robot. Yeah. It could be just a machine that produces these Valentines. It could be, yeah, that politician trying to get my, well, he, if he wanted my vote, he'd be very. Blind monkey at a typewriter or something, right? <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Okay. So, so it needs to be. Uh, I remember one time Mr. Burns was, I think he was taking Homer on a tour of his mansion. They came into a room where there are all these monkeys at typewriters. And he said, yeah, they're working on a, a novel. And he pulled the paper out and he read it and said, it was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. You stupid monkey. <laughs> I just watched that yesterday. Oh, you so saw that one? It's yeah. fresh in my mind. I don't know. Someone. I was, was that a trillion dollar bill episode? The, which one? Which one? Which episode was that? I don't remember. I, I wasn't watching the Simpsons episode. Oh. Someone just presented that in something I was listening to. I think it was like an uh, intelligent design conversation. And they were talking about that. Uh, Stephen uh the the big id guy i forgot his name but yeah they were he he, he quoted that word for word the blurst of times i was just cracking up that was <laughs> great yeah so so uh yeah if you love god you can distinguish god from other things yeah right? only god's eternal you know the eternal power and the divine nature of god and that's where we're using reasons so this is, gets us now in discussion of reason because i'm not talking about reasoning human reasoning can be fallacious that's why i teach logic class because my students don't no logic yet, and they have to learn it. Yeah. But reason is the laws of thought by which we distinguish things like A and non-A, eternal and not eternal. And so because we can do that, we can know God. If you couldn't do that, you wouldn't have knowledge. So when uh, just to get clear here, so when you're describing reason, um, maybe capital R reason or something like that, yeah. 
Uh, is that referring to the laws of logic or the abstract uh, ability to for humans to reason? Something a little different than that. Okay. I'm not trying to be pedantic, but sure. the laws of logic means the laws of inferences. So okay. you have two premises. The laws of logic tell you how to get to a conclusion. Yep. The laws of thought are a little bit different and they're more basic. Okay. Because the laws of thought are what is needed to even have a thought at all let alone go on to do logic. So for example, identity. Yeah. A is A. God is God. The first sin was a violation of the law of identity. Yeah. Something that's not God is God. Yeah. You violate a reason. The law of non-contradiction. All three of the laws of thought are intertwined. You can't, each of them comes with the other. You can't get rid of them. So the law of non-contradiction says not both A and non-A. So that's what I would. That's what I had in mind when I said the laws of logic. So you're calling yeah. you. You would call those the laws of reason. Yeah, laws of thought. Or or thought laws of thought. And the well, laws of logic means the the science. Logic's the science of inferences. How do I make inferences? Right. If I have two beliefs, all men are mortal, and Socrates is a man, logic tells me what else I can know. So, so in in the laws of logic uh, set, you're you're having uh, uh, modus ponens and and yeah. and tolerance and stuff, but. Laws of, of thought are those three fundamental laws uh, that we talk yeah, about. Here, and here's an example of why it's important is because someone will come along and say, oh, you have the laws of thought, but I have an alternative so- set of logical laws. You're well, talking no, about like non non logical laws is what it is. It's, it's based on the laws of thought. So even if you have a, a, a set of laws called dialethian logic, uh-huh. where you can conclude A and not A. That's okay in that system to conclude yeah. A and not A. That rule is what it is. It follows the law of identity. Uh, yeah, right? right. So you can't escape. You could you could pick different laws of logic. At that point, it's like picking a game. You're playing a board game and you pick different rules. Sure. I, I'm doing the dialethian rules today. But you can't avoid the laws of thought if you're thinking. That's really, really helpful for me to think through because, yeah, I've been conflating laws of logic with the laws of, or just using that term differently and then getting all agitated when someone comes up with non-classical forms or, or fuzzy logic or whatever you want to talk about. But So fuzzy logic is fuzzy logic. It's mm-hmm. not non-fuzzy logic. Yeah, right. So, so the laws of thought, you just can't avoid them if you're thinking at all. Yeah. So... So I like that. Um, is that a is that a distinction that philosophers make uh, in in like the modern academy today? Well, that's why I said earlier I like Aristotle because I think Aristotle goes over these things uh, as well. Yeah, uh, um, but probably in metaphysics or something, right? Yeah, and in the, in the uh, logics also. Oh, okay. And in, yeah. um, so what I'm telling you is not something Anderson discovered. I mean, right, if you look right, up the right. laws of thought, you'll find these right. three laws. These, these are the laws of thought. Yeah. What, what's happened is that there, the, 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 the distinctions you're making or, or not making are, or what happens is people start to call all of this logic. Yeah. And then we have, we have classical logic. So then they're, they're not distinguishing the laws of thought are a whole separate category. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those who argue for dialethian logic are arguing. They're giving you thoughts. They're using yeah. reason to present their case. And you have to you it you don't assume that they mean the opposite of what they mean precisely yeah. at the same time in the same way yeah so yeah. you're still using laws of logic they are too or laws of laws of thought yeah. in order to even interpret what they're saying yeah that's why you can't you can't get around them if you're thinking sure. and that's why the failure to be rational results in meaninglessness because mm-hmm. it's, it's not meaning. that you're saying false things it's what you're saying isn't even meaningful yeah. It both is and it isn't at the same time in the same respect. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. 
So then once we get, go back now to when we're talking about the theistic arguments, yep. reason reveals God to us. Mm-hmm. We distinguish between eternal and not eternal. And calling something that's not eternal eternal is a contradiction. And that's the basis for all misrepresentations of God. Yeah. Starting with you can be God knowing good and evil yourself. Yeah. All the way down to the present. That's so great. That uh, Dr. Van Hooser talks about that a lot with um, with his his dialogical um, view on on Satan, and and it, it gets into a little bit of like privationist view of evil, which is which is interesting. But like Satan is the father of lies. He's telling, yeah, you know, um, nothings like they're it's nonsense. Yeah, because you it, can be God is nonsense. Right. I was just created. Right. How could I be the creator? Right. Right. Yeah. Which is so because I actually don't know where I where I fall in on on privationist views. I think I'm, I'm I like a little bit, you know. I'm kind of an Augustinian. I like that, but um, I want to say evil is something. Yeah. Um, well, you'd have at least yeah. So apart from that question, you'd have to abandon reason mm-hmm. to believe that. Yes. So that's why reason, as we've just defined it. Yeah. Because someone I'm, else I'm, will say, no, Adam's problem was that he was using human reason. Hmm. So no, that's not how we're using the word reason. He had to believe a contradiction, which is nonsense, literally the word nonsense, yeah. in order to eat of the fruit. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, that's why I that's why I'm emphasizing the use of reason here. We don't want to give reason to Dawkins. Say, oh, those guys use reason. Amen, we man. Faith. No, 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 to- no, totally. Amen to that. I, I totally agree. So uh sorry, we, we got sidetracked on a bunch. Sure. It was really good. But so getting back to uh to morality. Law, um, the the laws of the the natural moral law from reason. So we got like a, a first kind of step that we we first turn to a contradiction, and so the morality and reason are uh, intertwined. Is that? Yeah, right. So so basically, the definition of the good means the good is according to the nature of a thing. So when you're asking what is good, you have to tell me what you're talking about. What's good for a car is not the same as what's good for a giraffe. So there's so a, there's what's a, good for a human, you're asking, what is it that's good for humans as rational beings? Well, it's to use reason to know what's clear about God. That's what's good for us. So um, so to know the good, you need to know, would you say you need to know the ontology and teleology of the thing? Or just one? Yeah, and those will go together. And once you know the nature of the thing, you know, you know both of those. Okay, okay, cool. So, you uh, know, so, yeah, you use reason to know uh, God. Mm-hmm. That's the that's reason necessarily reveals God. It's unavoidable. Reason is not neutral. Yeah. So when someone says, well, I don't, I don't believe in uh common ground. Sometimes what they mean by that is I don't believe in neutral ground. Yes. You're right. Yeah. If you, if you distinguish eternal and not eternal, you're, you're already down the path to knowing God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happens in a lot of, in reform talk, maybe with the sensitive in Yep. It's a very vague thing, right? Some sense of a higher power. Yeah. You don't have, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say the sensus divinitatis is the answer to question four of the shorter catechism. Uh-huh. Everybody deep down knows God's a spirit who's infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and being, wisdom, power, etc. Because that's easy to prove. No, they don't. Yeah. But they have some sense. Everyone's an idle factory. Okay, so everyone has the idea of eternal without yeah. the gift. Well, by the time you're three years old, you have or, or a Or a highest good, maybe? Is that? Yeah, and everyone has that too. And, and then they, they yeah. misapply eternal. Yeah. to something that's not eternal. And that's what our first parents did, and we've all done it ever since. I wonder, the eternal thing has got me stuck a little bit. I wonder why, 
I, I just, I'm a Christian, so naturally I'm like, yeah, that sounds right to me. But I'm wondering if, if I'm a non-Christian, I might ask, well, why would I, why, why do you think everyone desires to know the eternal? You know, I, I, I like being fine. I don't want to live forever or anything like that. What I know yeah. your students probably ask you this. When you, it's interesting. It does happen because we conflate eternal and everlasting. So when you said live forever, you're talking about into the future. Yeah. When we I say can't eternal, be eternal. I'm talking about no beginning. Yeah. Right. So it yeah. is true. Whatever's eternal also has no end. But you could have something that had a beginning and has no end. It's everlasting. Like I think our souls are everlasting. When you say eternal, so there's a distinction in you know philosophy of religion or whatever between eternal and everlasting, and people have different conceptions of God. And some people will say etern- eternality means not in time. Yeah. Is that is that what you mean? Uh, well, I think I think I, I do mean that. And I think we could get there just okay. by considering what time is. That time can't have have already existed from eternity. Because uh, if it did, we'd never get to where we're at. Yeah, we would get to where we're at. And um, time is the measurement of change. Time's not a thing that exists by itself. It's it's a measurement of changing things. Yeah. So you think about what you do with a clock. Well, you have you have a, a hand that moves at regular intervals, so you can measure change. Mm-hmm. So if there's nothing changing, there's no time. Yeah. And what's eternal is not changing, so there's no time. It's not like it's not like what's eternal got its BA. And then a few later, years later, got its MA, and then it wrote its first book. Those are changes you can mark off. Right. right. What's eternal doesn't change. Yeah. So time, this is part of the puzzle. I think Augustine supplies this, but it's part of the puzzle that pushes Aquinas to say, this is why we need the Bible. He says we can't know if the material world is eternal or not without the Bible. Hmm. Because time, the world may have existed from eternity. And that's like, oh, no. Yeah, you missed it there. Don't say that. But Augustine points that out, that time itself was created yeah that i don't i i get this nagging question i hope it doesn't draw us off too far but so i i i'm not uh, i've stayed away from time a lot because there's so many other things to to uh think through um but I'm, I'm starting to get into it i'm having another philosopher on to talk about time to kind of school me on it but so if god is eternal then that means we we are forced to think that god does not think discursively is that is that right? Because to think discursively means you need time. Uh, this might be a good good for us too to bring back the discussion of reason. You right. and I had a little bit of comments about reason, yeah, uh, on Facebook together. But to think about, to say, well, wait a minute, okay, reason applies to human experience, but you can't say reason applies to God. Hmm. All right, so I'm going to address that from two perspectives. One of them is what you're asking right now. Yeah, what you're asking right now. Um, <laughs> so the first one is that reason applies to all being. God can't both be and not be at the yeah. same time in the same respect. Or God can't both be eternal and not eternal. In my head, that's Aquinas. That's associated with Aquinas. Um, maybe. Kind of a univocal answer. Well, that's a little bit different than getting to that because that, that, okay. I'm going to go there next about yeah. okay. what, what, is it, what is it like to be God? So reason applies to all being. If something is, mm-hmm. it also isn't not. Right. Right. Well, so that, that applies to anything that exists, including God's nature. And you don't, it's not helpful for the theist or the Christian to say, God's way beyond reason. I think you're, you're right. Because right. then, because then even practically, do you trust God? Well, yeah. Well, that, but also any religion can do that, right? So yeah. Why are you well, because we have all these good arguments, but at the end of the day, we just can't have reason. Well, that's what the Hindu can say. Right. And he can exist and not exist in the same time. We yeah, are contradictions. Yeah. Freud put it that way. I kind of like it. This is a paraphrase, but he said something like, which of the contradictory religions should I believe? <laughs> so the Christian goes around and says, there's paradoxes. 
all right, you're done, right? Why should I believe the Christian paradoxes and not the Buddhist paradoxes? Well, because we have better paradoxes. Yeah, we, you're touching paradoxes and uh, yeah. Okay, okay. So on purpose. <laughs> I didn't know first. Now you might say, well, there's apparent paradoxes which will be resolved in the future. Again, yeah, the Buddhist is like, amen, brother. Well, there might, ours. There be, might be some that, that, that aren't going to be resolved in the future, like yeah. because of the creator-creature distinction, you know. So, so well, in, okay. well, that gives us this. I don't, I don't think those are contradictions. Sure. Yeah. Of course not. Sense, not even apparent ones. This is true about all. This is also true about all beings. So, reason applies to all being is true, and also you can't get to being in itself. That's not only true of God. It's also true of any other being. You know, you you can't peel back experience of my computer and get to my computer in itself. It's just not possible. Well, 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 a lot of these questions about God get that way. What is it like for God to think? It's not yeah. that there's a contradiction in that. It's that that's beyond anything you could ever know. Yes. And so, so what I would say to that is that it seems, it does seem apparently contradictory though. Right. Wow. right. It, it, well, because, so I think I'm agreeing exactly with what you're saying, but I want to say, we okay, so so God thinks God's personal. Yes, amen. Uh, I would say analogous to us, not in the same manner as we are persons. Yeah. Um, okay, so there well, we go. And this is where it helps the the, the Westminster helps us uh -huh. with the larger and narrower aspects of human nature. Okay. So God is God has incommunicable attributes, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, mm -hmm. totally unlike us. We'll never be eternal, infinite, unchangeable. Totally. But God has property he eternally is good yeah and infinitely good and unchangeably good but we're finitely temporally and changeably good yes so that's the analogy part what what yeah. things are dissimilar the incommunicable attributes what yeah. things are similar those properties that, that we also have because we're the image of god but even and and so i think you're making the distinction that even in the communicable attributes they're not univocal they're analogical yeah okay awesome I think yeah. so. there's some problems that come up in the i think the van Til clark discussion brings out about those properties. But I think a lot of it occurs because I'm kind of stepping back before that to say, I, I think we can avoid that whole debate by setting aside certain questions as we simply can't answer them, which is something like, what is it like for God to think eternally? So that, well, that's what we got there from asking is a discursive. Right. Or what's it like to be in an eternal relationship? It's not that we don't know now and we'll know in heaven. Right. Finite creatures can never know. That's just it, beyond no, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, it's not, I don't think it's something that can be revealed to us. If we were God, then yeah, we could. Yeah, we have the mind of God. Exactly. No, but not, it's not like that. We it, There's a creator-creature distinction. Yeah, exactly. And though I get that if you want to follow these threads, it seems like it's contradictory. It actually isn't. And we have a justification for not believing it, it's contradictory. And the, right. the, the justification is the creator-creature distinction. Right. Yeah. So you got into apparent contradictions because you went too far. Exactly. Where you're, you can't go. This is this is the basis for all Reformed theology. Reformed yeah. systematic theology always start with this. Our knowledge of God is from revelation. Yes. You never have direct access to God. Yeah. Now, I want to bring up a problem. That means a big problem for the beatific vision doctrine. Mm -hmm. So our knowledge of God is only from revelation. Now, one problem occurs quickly when they think that means only redemptive revelation. It doesn't. Right. Our knowledge of God is from either general revelation or special revelation. Mm-hmm. And to try to go beyond those into God himself is what the mystics do. And it causes all kinds of problems. You can't do that. 
I think that's that's absolutely right. Or uh, so you got mystical experiences, or you have like a theosis doctrine where you're becoming God, and it's like, well, stop because you just went past the creator-creature distinction, and that's a problem. Yeah, that's why when I when I talk to East Northos friends, I ask them now, and I, I'm I'm still not exactly clear. Theosis could mean you become divine, which is the first temptation. You can't. Uh, yeah. Or it could mean sanctific- It could mean what Protestants mean by sanctification. And that, that they tend to go more that direction. Which is so weird. What a weird word to pick for them. I know. Yeah. That, that's the thing. I wouldn't want to use that word. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, C.S. Lewis verges on that in some of his writing, which is like, I don't know if Lewis said this, but God became man so man could become. No, maybe that's not Lewis. Something but, like that, that too. But but here's the thing is so the B, I mentioned the beatific vision because that can mean different things. One mm-hmm. of the main, historically, the main thing it means is that at death, when you're out of your body, you somehow have direct knowledge of God. Yeah, and so they'll use some scriptures like see God face to face in First Corinthians thirteen, um, but mostly it just comes from Plato and, yeah. and seven of the Republic, the, the uh, allegory of the cave. So or, or I think I, I think I've heard people go to Augustine and like the latter Jacob's ladder, whatever, right? Yeah, the beatific vision and him and his his mom. You can see God directly. Hmm. You only know God by revelation. So this is an attempt to get to God. By going around the word of God, because the word of God is not just Christ incarnate. It's not just scriptures. The logos in John chapter one, it says, is in the creation. Yeah. So you're trying to get access to God, just like these other problems we were mentioning. The beatific vision is another one. You're trying to get access to God and bypass God's revelation. Yeah. That's not pious because people put it as pious. Like, I just want to see God. Well, that's not pious. You're, You're trying to avoid the way God revealed himself. Right. Yeah, so I I totally totally agree with you on there, and I think even us both affirming that creator creature distinction and trying to go past that is when we get into antinomies or paradox yeah, contradiction. Whatever you want to say, well, here's, here's what kind of I don't say irks me, makes me sad, is that you'll see theologians spending a ton of time on that, and they haven't even established the clarity of general relation first. Hmm. So they bypass what we should be doing and go on to univocal or analogical, and they divide up into camps and argue about it. Well, wait a minute. How about we just first start by showing that everyone should know only God's eternal? Yeah, so I I tend to agree with you, and that's why I want to do philosophy after I'm done here with theology, because yeah. I think there's that, there's that point uh, right between the two where I don't want to assume— and just say here, you know, uh, I'm just don't I don't worry about those questions because I'm a theologian. So yeah. I have revealed scripture. That's what all I focus on. I'm yeah. glad that there are people who do that. I just don't want to do that. And I work with college kids who yeah. won't let me do that. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's why. That's one reason I like being in the secular academy, and and that's what I wanted to do was was uh, you're studying general relation together. Like what can yeah. we know? And you're asking all these questions. These are the ones I want to ask. I just did a um uh, a podcast on the death of theology. Hmm. The current condition of theology. And that, that's one of the things I argued is that you have theologians working on, let's call them high level problems. Like you're doing calculus, but you haven't even agreed on arithmetic yet. Yeah. Like you're spending time on the anatomy of a centaur and you don't even know if there are centaurs. It turns out centaurs are fictional and you spend all your, your life studying their anatomy. Yeah. So is there even a God, is it even clear God exists? Is, I'll call this the principle of clarity. Mm-hmm. Basic things about God and the good must be clear to reason, or, there, or there's no purpose of studying anything else. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm not a, I'm not a historian here, but it seems like a lot of my ST books from the past did include all sorts of arguments for God's existence, 
because they didn't want to just take that. And and I, I, I don't mean to sound impious or anything like that, but they wanted to show that nature does testify to God. Yeah. Well, that's what I like about Charles Hodges. He, he begins that way in his systematics with a whole section and, and, and somewhat follows the outline I gave of ontological, cosmological, teleological, but a whole section on that about what are the different views of God and how do we know which one's true? Because a lot of times people can't even explain those. They just think it's either God or not God. Yeah. And the term right. God is very ambiguous. So to say everyone deep down believes in God is like saying everyone deep down believes in Blick. <laughs> what is it? I don't even know what you're talking about right now. Yeah. Yeah. I need some content in there. Okay. So um, we've talked, I, I want to chase down some reason stuff, but I also want to chase down some more of the, the morality stuff. Is there any way we can do both here or, or would you rather stick with one? Well, they do overlap. Yeah. In the sense that as, at, since, since we're rational beings, we ought to use reasons to know God. Yeah. So morality begins there. If you were to somehow take out rationality, we would, morality is gone. What does that even mean now? Yeah. Morality involves a, involves a conscious choice about what you value, which yeah. involves beliefs about the world, which are formed by reason. Yeah. I, I, um, so pulling from, from John Frame, I think is the first person who I, who I heard this from maybe George Mavrodes, but there's like a moral component to reason. Like, so if you look at a, a syllogism and you see premise one and premise two, and you see that they're both true, and this is a valid syllogism that the conclusion does follow from the premises. It's, it's a sound argument. There's like a moral component that you ought to affirm the conclusion then. And, and you ought yeah. not, you ought not intentionally try and suppress that knowledge or, or not come to that knowledge because you don't like where the conclusion is. Yeah. Right. Something like that. And there's like this overlap and we try to like separate out is that they usually use very trivial examples Hmm. as opposed to let's use that insight and apply it to what's eternal. Yeah. Given that, you know, something doesn't come from nothing. Mm -hmm. You have to believe something is eternal. Yeah. You're morally required to believe that. And it's a moral failure not to believe that. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I think um, Kant actually has a really interesting ontological argument before his critical phase where he makes a, a, a similar point to that. And then he just never dealt with his own ontological argument in the critique, uh, in the first critique or any of his critiques. But uh, it's really interesting. I really like that. And and, and it's true. Yeah, the, the eternal... Uh, aspect where it's kind of ontological, but it's also cosmological. Um, yeah. 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 That's interesting. Well, yeah. Right. So for Kant, he definitely rejects the ontological and the cosmological. He thinks that the teleological has some sentimental sort of weight. Right. But even then, when, when Kant's talking about God, it's like he's talking about being in itself. And, and, and since being is not a predicate for him, then you can't use this on that. Descartes yeah, version of, of the ontological argument. Um, but one of, one of my philosopher friends has, has said that he actually didn't answer his own ontological argument, and I don't know enough to know the difference. But you've talked about being in this podcast episode, and I'm wondering, um, it seems like you, you would say being is a predicate. Is that? Well, here, here's what Kant's getting at, which is that there's a, there's a problem when you talk about something, you're already thinking it exists. Mm-hmm. So if I say the computer is in front of me, in front of me is a counter predicate of the computer. Right. right. But it already exists in order to be in front of me. Mm-hmm. So being is, I would say it this way, it's a, it's a unique predicate. It's not like any of the others. Okay. 
Um, I don't know that it isn't a predicate at all, but it's it, all the other predicates assume being. Yeah. Well, that's another interesting point. Um, I talked about, about this a little bit with James Anderson about um, like the onto, the ontology of Bilbo Baggins, where it's like he yeah. he has properties and stuff, but he he doesn't have being. Yeah, imaginary beings. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I guess they still have being in. You have to predicate it with imaginary, I think. Like I mentioned, centaurs. Yeah, but so then I I just wonder like the where are those grounded? Then is it just grounded in everyone who has a concept of centaur, or is it outside in in a Platonic realm somewhere? Yeah, well, you would suppose that God too has the idea of centaur. Mm-hmm. So if all humans stop thinking about it, God God can also can think about things that both are real, like horses, and not real, like centaurs. Yeah. But then, um, here's part of the problem with Bilbo mm-hmm. is when you flesh out the world. Now you got me earlier. You were trying to get me with Grandma. Now you're going to get me with Tolkien. That's right. That's right. Because Tolkien's world is not theistic. For all the books. Finding the gospel in the Lord of the Rings, seeing Jesus in Aragon. Hmm. This is a, a Gnostic world hmm. where the demiurge makes the world and then is no longer, he organizes it and then is no longer involved in this world. And lesser spirits, Gandalf is one of them, Sauron's one of them, come into this world and try to, they're the ones that humans interact with and battle with. That's no, that, that's the that's the mystery religions or Gnosticism. That's not theism. So because yeah. he, he talks about this, this God that forms the world, people think, oh, that's the same thing. No. So once you start fleshing out the world that hobbits live in, that's yeah. when you get into questions about, is it a logically possible world? Is Gnosticism a logically possible world? Hmm. Is materialism a logically possible world? Is spiritual monism a logically possible world? So so that's interesting. So um, that's a really good point. Some some people, uh, I, I know if, if a Tolkien scholar was listening, or, or a popular level Tolkien scholar who wrote a book on this, um, there, I, I think of someone who talked about, you know, there's this sovereignty aspect going on. And so maybe it's like the book of uh, of Ruth and, you know, God's not mentioned per, uh, specifically, but all the, the coincidences that have to happen in order for Tolkien or for, so for the Ring. Because God, is, in, in the Tolkien mythology, God is written about the, the deity of Tolkien. He writes about that. I forget the name right now. Um, and yeah, it's just like the Demiurge. Yeah, yeah. So we say, look, I think the Demiurge is good because at least it's closer than atheism. Yeah, As I, saying, I like Bale because he's closer than the materialist. It's like, no, he's still an idol. Well, and that's part of the reason for my initial, uh, I was initially into presuppositional apologetics because it was kind of throw down the whole gauntlet or nothing at all. I don't really care to make theists because theists uh, worship wrong gods. Like yeah, that's yeah. not Christ, right? So there's no salvation there. Yeah, but, I, I would describe what I've been doing and what I describe in that book you held up earlier as rational presuppositionalism. Yeah, I've heard, I've, I've saw that on the internet just randomly. I was, I was searching through something after I was already familiar with you, and someone was like, "Hey, this guy calls himself a rational presuppositionalist," and I thought that was really interesting. Um, I want to get to there, but going to the the possible world semantics of Lord of the Rings, if it's not a feasible world, well, let's say if it's not a possible world, does that mean that it's internally incoherent? That it has to be like a a, a contradiction for it to be not possible? Yeah, well, I remember my dissertation advisor told me there's a possible world made up of just ping pong balls. And the, the way he's operating is that if you can kind of like close your eyes and imagine just a bunch of ping pong balls and then nothing else space, that it's possible. Yeah, I don't I never okay. thought that was possible. Yeah, I don't think that is either. And here's why is because the ping pong balls are material. So what you're saying is there's a possible world where matter existed from eternity. And I think by the very nature of matter, it can't have existed from eternity. 
So that's I, not true. I think that's true. I think you're right. My my reasoning has always been like, well, I think God is necessary, and so I yeah. I can't conceive of a world without God. Yeah. So, but I think if I'm if I'm right, so the the the, the popular scholar of Tolkien you mentioned can push back and say, no, it's not the demiurge. But if I'm right, this yeah. is like this is like Plato's demiurge. Then that's not theism, and that's not God. And if God is necessary, that's not a possible world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. It's interesting because you can write about not possible worlds. Yeah. Well, until you flesh them out. Like as long as it's kind of a mystery, this is what happens with Star Wars. Let's pick on Star Wars instead. Sure, yeah. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> as soon as you start filling in the blanks. Yeah. People are like, oh, that's terrible. Right. Yeah. As long as it stays vague around the edges and you just have basically it's a space Western in the first movie. Yeah. 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 As long as it stays that you're fine. As soon as you start explaining what is the force? It's tiny little cells in your blood. That was a big mistake on their part. Yeah, well, as soon as you, but any answer you give is going to be that problem because it's basically he's trying to create a dualistic system modeled after Taoism. And as soon as you start fleshing that out, you're just teaching Taoism and it's going to have all the same criticisms that Taoism has. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point. And so, as, as long as the, the more vague you keep it, the more it can, you can supply the, um, systematic elements that are needed yeah. to make an enjoyable yeah. story. You assume hobbits are just like us and the world is just like our world. As soon as you flesh out, it's like, no, there's this demiurge who forms it. And there's these other spirits who are lesser than him. And they're the ones we're interacting with. Yeah. Or uh, what about Marvel? Yeah. That, that, that's definitely that same hierarchy. The material yeah. universe is eternal. It's going through e- eternal cycles. And there's this being called the one above all. But he's still subject to the universe, and he's trying to exist, to stay in existence through the next crunch. Mm. That's what makes him the highest. And then there's lower ones called the Celestials, and they're trying to survive it also, but they're not as powerful as him. And then there's humans that interact with them. Remember in the uh, Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy movie, remember, that's one of the Celestials. The planet? Remember what his name is? Yeah. No, I can't think of it right now. Ego. What does that mean? What, what is it? You broke out. Ego. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like I, it's the, I the yeah. Oh yeah. Ego, Ego, I am. Ego Amy. He wanted to have a, a human child with a human woman to rule the universe with him. Yeah. It's like a, just a cheap, this is the Gnostic version of Christianity. Totally. Yeah. We'll pay big bucks to see that. Yeah. Oh, uh, actually that's a, that's a good point. I want to, I want to touch on. So uh, if you were doing like cultural apologetics or you're talking to your students, you're trying to bridge this gap to them. Would you would you use that as an example and say, hey, look, this is an example of the greatest story ever told, God, you know, God's meta narrative, but it's a cheap knockoff. And w- would you go that way, or would you go, no, it's 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 paganism. It's well, I don't know if I say, oh yeah, I see. Well, so it could it be a cheap knockoff, like like they're just trying to tell the same story, because ego is a created being, right? In the in the in the Gnostic text, Yahweh is a created being, mm-hmm. so. I would point out those similarities is what I would do. I okay. wouldn't say pagan and I wouldn't say it's a cheap knockout, but I'd say, look, there's only so many stories in the world. They get recycled. Yeah. One of them is that there's a hierarchy of spiritual beings. The highest one is distant and doesn't care about us. Uh, and we have to contact lesser beings. That's polytheism. It's been a very popular view. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. And so you're getting Marvel's just doing, I mean, that's not a surprise, right? Marvel's one of the main characters is Thor. So yeah, Marvel's just doing that same story. Right. I actually I didn't know about the cosmology there with the so so Marvel's a bang crunch kind of uh universe. At least, at least in how it describes that one. There's this one above all, then there's a being just under him called the Fulcrum. Mm. 
And the fulcrum is kind of like a logos character in the sense that he's the one who interacts with humans. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That that sounds like uh, I think stoicism too. With the, with the they kind of had a trinity going on, but it was not not the divine trinity that we know. Um, I think that's stoicism. But uh, anyway, so going on to I'm not sure we totally buttoned up the morality uh, aspect about about di- distinguishing the moral law, but but you showed us how we can go to uh, eternality or, or eternal, right? That that God is eternal. Um, right. We start there, that distinguishing yeah. God from all else. Yeah. And then from there, you can use reason to adjudicate the or, or elaborate on the, the natural moral law? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When you think about that, uh, God as our creator is the determiner of good and evil for us. Mm-hmm. To try to put myself in the place of determining good and evil is contrary to my nature. It violates reason. Yeah. And then second, to misrepresent God is a violation of reason to say that God is like a material thing mm-hmm. right? a violation of reason or God is like a human just with more powers. Yeah. Superhuman. And then third, you, you shouldn't treat the revelation of God lightly. That's what it means to be treat something in vain. And, and people more normally narrow that down to just like cussing. Right. Or they might say, don't treat the Bible lightly. It applies to all of the name of God. The name of God is that by which God is known. It includes general revelation. Mm, okay. So general revelation lightly with contempt yeah so you can keep going like that but you can show how yeah all of these are knowable from general yeah. okay and that's that's good i i think lately i've been thinking about sin in a different way through like the imago day so like because because i'm an image bearer of god when i tell a lie i'm telling the rest of creation that god's a liar mm-hmm. uh, and if i were to murder someone like god is in control of life and death and if I were to take that into my own hands, that's wrong because I'm the creature acting like the creator. It's okay yeah, for God to do it. I said, right, which is you're you're putting yourself in the place of God. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and I think that's good. I think that that is a really interesting way to think about it, to just see how bad sin really is mm-hmm. uh, and to see that we do know that this is wrong. Um I wanna I wanna go on to oh I'm sorry, I missed you it. You can know it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the reason it's wrong is because you know it and you did it anyway. Yeah. I've been suggesting the culpable ignorance view. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I think maybe a, a good transition would be the Euthyphro dilemma. Um, when, it, when it comes to – so God is our ultimate standard of right and wrong. Amen and amen. So would you agree that God's nature is the standard of, of – God doesn't uh, adhere to some higher moral law and, and he doesn't uh, arbitrarily make whatever laws. It, it's his own standard. His, his own moral nature is a standard of, of right and wrong. Something like that. I, I get, I, I gave it, I have a talk up on my YouTube page about that too. Okay. Because I, I think the dilemma is broken. You don't have to accept either a horn of dilemma. Yeah. It's a false. It, it's not that God determines what is good arbitrarily or that right. God determines what is good by looking at, some other blueprint, God determines what is good because he's the creator of the nature of things. Mm. So by giving humans a certain nature, God determined what is good for them. Okay. God wanted to determine something else for them. He would have made them with a different nature, but he couldn't have. So, so I agree with that. I would say he couldn't have made rape uh, right because that doesn't cohere with his own good nature. Does that seem okay? Or yeah. Or with, uh, uh, 
what would it, what humans are rational beings huh. in no context where you're a rational being is rape acceptable. So yeah, there's no, there'd be no way to do that to say, I want to make humans as rational beings and also decree that rape is okay. So by the very, by the nature that he's given the thing, by the telos of the human person there, uh, there's a f- fittingness or like it, it, it does, they don't go together. So like doing yeah. evil is not something that he could prescribe for us. Yeah. Just by definition of the term, an, an evil act is an act contrary to nature. Yeah. It makes you the nature and it prescribes you act contrary to your nature. Is it kind okay. of, contrary? yeah. So, so that's a, that's a different um, answer than I've heard before. Cause I usually go right to God's divine moral nature. You're going to his purpose for the creatures. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Okay. The nature, so, not just purpose. Purpose is there. It's definitely there. But it's not only that. It's like the nature of the example we gave of sex. Yeah. As uh, mutual. Not, uh, it involves two people. Consent- yeah. <clears throat> so you'd have to have a whole different nature to humans and sex in order to make rape okay, which is not possible. So that's a good point. So, um, what is that relationship, that sex relationship? Sorry, folks, that we keep going back to it, but it's where we're at. What, I mentioned Freud earlier. It must have stuck in your mind. That's right. What is what is, what is that grounded in? Is that is that like a concept that that God has to that He's inherited, or is that something that He's invented up? Because I think that's still gets us to reason. So we can we can we can leave off sex and go back to reason. Yeah. Um, is God? doesn't want to contradict himself just because it looks bad or where, what, how does reason fit into the nature of God? That's why I said reason applies to the being, to any being, including the being of God. Yeah. And so God doesn't contradict himself, not because it's some external standard, but it's the nature of being. Yeah. And so you would say that God can't contradict himself. Yeah. In this sense of contradiction, because someone might say, well, he told them to do it the one time, and later he told them something different. That's a contradiction. That's not a contradiction. Yeah. No, no, he can't do some, it can't be both A and not A at the right, same time. Right, 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 right. Totally. And because it's because his nature is is uh rational, um consistent. Yeah. 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 Okay, good, good. I like that. Logos so, is God. Yeah. So um we've we've gotten back and forth on online concerning the nature of reason and God. Yeah. And so I wanted to to finish on that point and just have you kind of school me on that. So you, we've, we've talked because I, my, my folks know the people listening know that I like transcendental arguments. Uh, I love it. Can't get enough of it. So yeah, you, you want to focus on reason as the transcendental. Um, and the concern I have on that is that it seems like reason is over and above both God and man in the same way. And I want to say there's an analogical relationship such that, you know, God isn't arbitrarily making reason, but that, um, the, the laws of human thought correspond to the laws of divine thought. And so that, you know, two plus two isn't five for God. It's, it's four for God and it's four for us, but his is uncreated and ours is created. I want to get into this whole thing where you're asking, what is it like for God to think two plus two is four? That's what we talked about earlier. You can't. Yeah. But I, what we want to avoid is this. Reason is how God reveals things to us. And he could have revealed things otherwise. No, there's no other than the laws of thought. Yeah. So, um, is that because is that because God um, 
uh, what's it? Oh, uh, divine lisping, uh, uh, cond condescension. Um, when he when he condescends to us, he can't describe anything in a different way because he's ordered or he's he's ordained that we think with the laws of thought, or because the laws of thought apply to him and us both. Uh, yeah, that's more like the second one, right? So it's not because humans are so limited, God has to speak in baby talk to us. Okay. And then we, we barely get it. And we talk some baby talk. If he talked in like God talk, we really wouldn't get it. Yeah. Right. So no, this is the laws of thought. It's not as if there's something else. Like, like when you graduate up to the black belt in theology, then you find out there's a fourth law. Yeah, or yeah, you get to heaven and then you can speak divine tongues with him and understand better. Right. So we'll yeah. Say there's a divine tongue, there's angelic tongues. They use reason. You distinguish you use an angelic word to mean this and not that. Yeah. And it is what it is. God is always God. There's not some revelation God could have done where God is also not God. Right. Amen. Yeah. So uh, are the laws of thought I want to I want to say those are grounded in God, ultimately in God's nature. What, what are you doing with those? Like, are, are they things or are they just are kind of deflationary on them? What, what, what are... They're part of the nature of being. So okay. some of this could be a discussion about where do we start? And someone could say, we have to start with God in order to go somewhere else. That's kind of the, what people call the transcendental argument. But what's happening in a transcendental argument is someone saying, if you don't start with God, you end up in a contradiction. So they're really still starting with the law of non-contradiction as the, as the authority and saying, you got to start with this view of God or you end up in contradiction. Now, presumably, the Hindu could say, no, you got to start with Brahman. All things start there or you end up in a contradiction. Mm -hmm. You're going to have competing tag arguments, and you're going to have to show which of them actually follows the law of non-contradiction and which of them done. It's not enough just to assert. Right, yeah, because you could literally, like you said, you could fit anything as that uh, that presupposition being presupposed. Yeah, so You're really presupposing the law of non-contradiction. And you're applying it to this argument about why you got to start with God. Um, yeah, totally. So I, I, I'd agree there. And I think, I think the people who straight up just go, you know, you have to start with God and they mean that temporally and logically they're, they're not um, sure on what they're really saying. Yeah. I, I think that, let's see. I Movies think, yeah. You have to affirm only God is eternal. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say you start with God because it's ambiguous what that means. But you must affirm, reason requires that you affirm only God's eternal. That that aspect right there, you saying reason affirms or could you say could you say presupposes reason presupposes that God is eternal? It'd be hard because God is eternal, the law of identity applies to it. It means God is eternal and not not God's eternal. Okay. So it doesn't come prior to the law of identity. So the law so of identity applies to it. That's that's where I get hung up because that makes it seem like then logic or the laws of thought are external to God above him, even applying to his attributes like uh, eternality. Well, they do apply to any of God's attributes, but they're not they're not external to being. That that's the problem. So so thought and the laws of being. So precisely because God is, mm -hmm. the laws of thought apply to God. And so since he's the foundational being, he would be the ultimate ground of the laws of, of uh, thought. Yeah, well, that's why I think John puts it so well. God is made known by the Logos, and the Logos is God. Mm -hmm. Both are true. But 
that's and interesting. Separate them gets into some of the problems you're anticipating. Like now yeah. you have something above God. Yeah. Are you saying God has to listen to reason? That seems problematic. Well, so in in that sense, though, Gordon Clark talked about that. Um, he wrote a whole book on on Johannian logos and, and saying you know he translated it in the beginning was the logic and the logic was with God and logic was God and so it seems like he's conflating. The, the laws of, of thought with Jesus and one is personal and one is impersonal. And that's a problem. Do we, so do you see what I'm saying? Like if. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it begins in a kind of progression, right? So it starts off with in the beginning was the word mm-hmm. and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Right. So personal. Boom. Increased, right, that's personal. So you get this increased, increasing revelation. The very thing that by which we know anything, because it says this uh, word, this logos is the light of man. Yep. That very thing by which we know anything is this one that's being spoken of who eventually becomes incarnate. So it's not Jesus. Jesus didn't exist from eternity. No, Jesus no, it's second, yeah. It's the son, the divine son, yeah. the divine longest. Oh God. Yeah. That is what by which we know anything else. So when, when someone says this reason, you're right. They say, well, that seems like impersonal, but I think that's what John is connecting and saying, the very basis for reality, that by which you know anything must be personal. And, right. and on reflection, yeah, that's right. I mean, that by which we know, knowledge is a personal thing. Right. Amen. So I totally agree with that. But I think getting back to it then, we I wouldn't say the laws of thought are are um, the logos, the second person of the Trinity. Because what it, then is the Father that would be- to the Son, right? Yeah, that would be too limited. I think yeah. it goes... It, John increasingly unfolds this. Yeah. So it starts off with this eternal logos yep. and the son of God. Mm-hmm. And that's when he says, uh, and that light was the life of man. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean physical life. Right? right. Not It's not your heart beating is the logos. The, the light of your mind is also the life, your life knowing. Right. If you know something, you're, it's like you're dead. Right. And then it goes into, and this same thing was in the creation, mm-hmm. and they didn't know it. So that's general revelation. Mm-hmm. And then he says, and it came to his own, and they did not receive him. That's the prophets. They rejected the prophets. Mm-hmm. And then becomes incarnate, yeah. full of grace and truth. Yeah. So all of those are true of the lowest. If you were to say just that first one is true, no, that's what John's doing. Yeah. He's leading us to show that word of God by which God makes himself known all the way up to Christ, who is full of grace and truth. Yeah. So I think what what Maybe um, we're we're saying similar things. Maybe not, but uh, if if uh, being is uh, if if so, being um, applies to or coheres with corresponds to uh, being is subject to the laws of thought, and so uh, an eternal being is the eternal ground for the laws of thought. If there were no being, there wouldn't be laws of thought. Correct. So you'd have to have nothing. So it's not, this is why it's a problem to say God uses reason to reveal things to us because of our limits. It some, it somehow indicates that there's some other way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If we we didn't have reason, if we could be just like him, then right. So what, what I think, what I see is like the transcendental argument is that if you're able to reason at all, there has to be this transcendent God who's the ground of all the laws of thought. Mm -hmm. Right, so if you're able to reason at all, a reason is transcendental because you can't escape it. Because try and argue against it, you're using it. Yeah. 
but there is this eternal ground, this eternal uh, uh, transcendent ground of reason in which the laws of thought inhere or uh, obtain. Well, or what that comes up because people are trying to distinguish the laws of thought and being, right? Once we think the laws of thought are also the laws of being, you can't have the laws of being and there's no being. Right. So that might be the grounding talk you're getting to, but it yeah. still could present the problematic wording, which is that there's being and it happens that the laws of thought apply to it. Oh, no. So so if there's being, then the laws of thought apply to this being. Yeah. But, but I think it, what you're doing is you're developing a very similar argument to what I did earlier. Right? Yeah. You're trying to show by reason, we'll call it, say theism, even though I know that the, the, I don't mean generic theism, but let's just say God the creator must be real. There's no other option. That that's so. I picked up those words uh, intentionally to to try and uh, find some common ground with you because I think that I want to say the same thing. I don't want to say you have to start with God as if you're escaping reason in order to to no you you can't escape reason. And because that, of reason, God, you begin with God in metaphysics. Right, 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 and and so, but I, I reason. Yeah, and I want to go further and say, if you are reasoning at all, there is an eternal ground of your reason, because the laws of thought don't exist without being. And so if they're eternal, then they have an eternal being by which they're grounded in. Yeah, or, right, yeah, I think that's right. That's a, You're developing a kind of ontological argument like I did earlier. Yeah. Now, here's the thing is, so you can get into kind of that Van Til move, which says that anything you believe presupposes you believe in God. And the problem there comes up when we think that – I think that does presuppose it, but it doesn't require that the people you're speaking of believe it. Believing is a conscious, deliberate act. That, that's that's a point. Have that conscious, deliberate act. But if they're believing other things, let's say math, mm-hmm. you consistently understood math, you'd understand that only God's eternal. Exactly. That is – that is – I don't want to be offensive. That is big-brained Ventilianism, I'd say. That is more complexified. That's I, I think that's what Van Til was getting at uh, in um, Survey of Christian Epistemology. I think that's the better way to go with it. I, I don't know about a more on the popular level you get. You do know. You do know. You yeah. do know. Well, no, I, I think even if you don't consciously know, you're tacitly presupposing in right. doing math. That's what I call rational presuppositionalism. Yeah. You're right about those presuppositions. And we have to test them by reason. Mm-hmm. And um, because of the Clark Van Til controversy, many Vantillians are allergic to that reason talk. And they say, yeah. no, you're being, you're, you're, that's, that's primacy of the intellect. And it's like, dude, just calm down. It's okay. It's or actually, they usually mean human reasoning. Yeah. And it's a little bit, it's actually more consistent with Van Til's transcendental language, at least in, uh, in survey of Christian epistemology and his his intro to systematic theology, and so if you're holding to a different point in Van Til, it's okay to say that he was contradictory. I don't. You can show me it if you want, but I see that as being very Van Tilian. Being he uses the analogy of a, a diving board, and so yeah, you're starting at the end of the diving board, but the diving board doesn't float in midair. You have to look back and see it's grounded in something. Yeah, and right. just like that, you start at any point in creation. And any point is going to presuppose God. Exactly. Yeah. And and just the the way that we recounted here, I think is is great. I like your your eternal language. I I have to get sharper on the eternal um, aspect because I know like guys like William and Craig will say, well, 
the, even the concept of eternality with God being a creator is there's, there's all sorts of yeah. philosophers that, that modern philosophers, right. That, that take issue with that language. Well, what we'll get into is, yeah, some problems about, so I'm starting off with eternal means no beginning. Okay. That's all. And then questions come up. Okay. Well, is what had no beginning changing from infinity or is it outside of time? And then once God creates, I think that's where William and Craig brings it up. Is it once God creates, then he's in time. Right. So we can go down those problems yeah. and, and we'd end up still with answer uh, four to the shorter catechism, which I don't think William Lane Craig holds to. No, he, every now and then he'll give some, some lip service and go, I, you know, I could agree with most of it except for positions against Molinism. Uh, well, not, yeah, that's right. right. But not that. I mean, the definition of God there. I don't think he holds the definition of God. Well, um, okay. So maybe I can, I can toss this at you and see if, if, if you have an answer for it. So in my head, I want to say that God is eternal, meaning no beginning, but that there's an aspect to intra-Trinitarian, uh, the intra-Trinitarian nature that has a, like a God time where the, anytime the father is, the father can glorify the son to the Holy spirit and that that there's a, an aspect of time in there that's not above God or beyond God, but it's an it's an uh, aspect of God's inner Trinitarian communication. Is that just like, hey, we're totally speculating? That's beyond. Yeah, I think what one problem is we might be getting into what we've mentioned already about questions about what is it like to be a, in an eternal triune relationship. But I, I think I also might handle this way. Charles Hodge handles the infra and super lapsarian debate this way. I think it'd be similar. Mm-hmm. So. A lot of times you think, well, I have to be super lapsarian, which is that God first predestined who's elect and then predestined the fall. Yep. And, and because that's from eternity. And mm-hmm. Hodge says, no, actually, it's the infralapsarian is the way we want to go for this reason. It's not a temporal order. It's a logical order. Mm-hmm. You first have creation and what is good and commanded and then a fall and then redemption logically mm-hmm. in God. Yeah. The, the logical order is not the same as a temporal order. The logical order in the divine plan becomes a temporal order in create. I mean, yeah, temporal order in creation. Yeah. So I would suspect that maybe the Trinitarian ones like that as well. We're thinking about what is a logical relationship of the son proceeding from the father mm-hmm. and trying to make it into a temporal relationship. Yeah. Well, so yeah, that's a great point. So logically um, before and after is not the same as temporally before and after. Yeah. I don't, I don't just mean uh, uh, the, the missions like later or the intra-Trinitarian. Uh, I mean, like for, for the father and I guess it is, it goes to what is it like to be God, but the father speaking to the son, um, I guess, you know, what does that even look like for a Trinitarian being to communicate uh, at intra anyways? But um it just seems to me like it's not that big of a problem if you say is on it and why do you want to know um i think if we can i don't mean that just about that but i think that's a lot of these questions about what is it like for god to know two plus two is four Mm -hmm. right yeah Uh, the way we do or is it different well again that's trying to get across that boundary yeah uh so Actually, Dr. Van Hooser today in class was said uh, the mark of a good theologian is knowing uh, when to stop and why to stop uh, yeah. when, it, when it comes to, to these kind of points, right? So uh, initially, like some of some of the reason I want to go into this stuff is because what you brought up earlier about if you have an objection and you let it stand unanswered, then it kind of eats away at you. And so some of that, like I do, I did a, a podcast on can can God know? Does God know what it's like to eat a Chicago style hot dog? And it's not just a, you know, how many angels dancing on a 
head of a, a pen or a pin or whatever, it's it's actually getting at the nature of God and, and how he's revealed himself and how he does know things. You know, right. uh, anything we can know, God can know plus. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I, I understand that. So that's why I said what hinges on it. So you can't someone can't do this. A contradiction is pointed out in your system. Yeah. You say, yeah, that's just beyond. Us. Right. You can't exactly. do that. Exactly. But that's why I said earlier, this is there's no contradiction in, in this, but you're trying to to get into being in itself, which we just can't do. Is that that sounds like Kant, right? It sounds like the, the ding on does, does hinge on that distinction. It's one of the reasons he gets the place he does, but it's not limited to Kant. I mean, there's some similar points made by Aristotle, but you're right. I think Kant develops the idea of being in itself and being as experienced. Yeah, right. Yeah, phenomenological or ph- phenomenal and numinal. Do you, when you say you can't get to being in your in itself, do you mean is that big B being? Is that God's being, or does that mean like even the tree outside that I, I can't I earlier, the computer in front of me? Yeah, yeah you did I mention can't that. Go back experience and see what's the computer really look like in itself. Wait, is that because like we can't get past our perspective? Like, what, what would it even mean? The only other perspective outside of ours is God's. Is that and so it would be inappropriate to try and see things from God's perspective? Is that why we can't see being in itself? Well, that definitely is true. We're limited to, um, we couldn't ever know as God knows. That's right. the presentation. Yeah, that view from nowhere. Just the nature of being, we, we, we know being as experienced. And to yeah. say, I want to experience it as not experienced is just a direct contradiction. Yeah, that's great. I like that. And I, I, I actually, I, I tend to agree a tiny bit with, with Kant's transcendental idealism. Um, from a Christian perspective, that this is how God wanted us to view the world. And there's things that we don't see like angels because he didn't want us to experience that, that in our phenomena. We, he didn't create us to see electromagnetism. Yeah, there's um, something you can't know about and and there's a reason not to peer into them. So so like angels, you could know about them. Maybe we'll be told eventually. Like Daniel's told more than we we know some things because what Daniel is told. Yeah. Right. But we can never peer into what it is to be God in himself. Yes. So someday Michael might tell you more, let's yeah. say, uh, the way he told Daniel. I, I think that's a very helpful distinction about the being. And because, yes, that, that beatific vision not, not not happening if you mean it in like an unmediated, we're seeing God. Yeah. Uh, but or, but yeah, God could open up the, the veil a little bit and let us see angels or, or some mystical God stuff. Daniel. Yeah, yeah. So we could, we, if we saw be, an angel... That still wouldn't be seeing being in itself, right? Because we're still using our, our as experienced, right? Yeah. Circles, yeah. circles covered in eyes. Yeah. <laughs> what does it really look like? That's great. So I had this conversation with some of my my wrestler uh, bros because uh, they were listening to Joe Rogan, and I have to listen to Rogan to to uh, reach these folks, and I like it. Too, I'm not gonna lie, but um, they're talking about using uh, psycho. Uh, psychedelics to experience yeah. uh the, the religious uh experience and stuff like that and yeah maybe we should use it for our faith and this wasn't one of my regular guys but um i was i was talking about kant and and how you know I, I don't think god designed us to to experience things that way if he told us to in the bible then yeah we could start practicing with it but he didn't and uh i i, I walked him into admitting that hey look you know uh if you're willing to experiment with drugs in order to uh, experience God, which could be hazardous to your health. Why are you not willing to experience God in the the means that he's ordained by reading your Bible, by going to church, by, you know, communicating with, with the same. Well, I, I missed that. What was that? That's what I was going to bring up and say, yeah. 
I don't even use the ordinary means of reason and general relation, but I want to use mushrooms and, and experience exactly. God. How about we just start with what God already gave us? Yeah. yeah, right. And and what he's what he said is good and proper for us to use. And and well, you know, mushrooms are part of general re- revelation. You're assuming that using them in that manner is the the right way to use them, uh, because Joe Rogan said so. So yeah. Man, uh, Dr. Anderson, this has been awesome. This has been one of my favorite conversations. We even got to mushrooms, right? I bet this is a pretty diverse podcast experience, huh? That's good. And, and uh, you know, any any uh, any points where you have uh, vanquished my views, I've also put you against uh, Grandma Sally and uh, and Lord of the Rings. So, yeah. <laughs> so I have those to fall back on. You know, and he's you a great Do you do jujitsu? I... Um, I missed the first part, but I heard, I heard jujitsu. Yeah, Joe Rogan likes that. Is that what you do? I I want to. I wrestled in college all the way up through college, and uh, I can't I can't keep wrestling. It, my knees are going to blow out. And I, I I think you can do jujitsu until you're 95. And so yeah, I really that's, that's why I've been doing that this year. Oh, is this the first year that you started with that? Yeah, I started earlier this year. Awesome. So yeah. it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's that's great. So uh, before this, for the folks at home, I, I looked at. Uh, uh, some of his uh, Dr. Anderson's stats here, and he's been teaching for 20 years. And I look at him like, "What? When did you start teaching, dude?" But now, now we see it's jujitsu, jujitsu that's been keeping you young. You're you're 75 here, but uh, yeah, you look I'm old, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, man, I'd I'd love to have you back on it to cover yeah, some absolutely. more stuff. That'd yep. be fantastic. Uh, one more time, can you plug uh, a couple of your books and then your your pod uh, your your YouTube channel so people can find you? Yeah, my YouTube channel is just Dr. Owen Anderson. And I have um, uh, different kinds of things on there. I have shorter uh, discussions. Usually those are called Hiking with Anderson. I have longer lectures. And then a few of my books, uh, the one that gets on most of what we were talking about today is this one, The Clarity of God's Existence. Mm-hmm. And then I have um, this book as well, which looks at the challenges to belief in God in the modern world and the natural moral law from uh, the good after modernity. So both of those might be interesting for your audience. It goes over the themes that we we're talking about today. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well. Uh- you guys, th- we could talk about this more, and, and we're going to. We're going to get into more stuff at a later date, but that's going to have to do it for now. Uh, as always, all glory to God. This has been Parker Pensy's Peace.